Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This is S4A live stream 89 being recorded on Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. I'm joined by about three dozen people at twitch.tv slash socialism S4A. We normally do these streams around this time and we've got a full length show planned for today. We're going to run down the agenda a little bit uh, later, but we're going to do what's new on the channel. Uh, also, I, I have made a kind of formal upcoming reading list that I plan to stick to. We might insert a few things into it, but I plan to stick to that so I can tell you what's coming up on the channel. We've got a bunch of current events, odds and ends, and we've got a couple of features pertaining to organizations. One um, which recently kicked the bucket and one which seems to be up and coming. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But for people who are new to the channel, I'd just like to do a quick introduction to Socialism for All. We've been going for about three years. We started this YouTube channel in February 2020, just before the pandemic started, while the Democratic primary was still going, before Bernie Sanders rolled over for his good friend Joe. Yeah, they're going to totally transform the Democratic Party. No, they're not. We're going to talk about that later in the show today. Um, but yeah, what's this all about? I'm a U.S. American studying Marxism, specifically anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism. I often post human-read audiobooks of socialist texts and very, you know, essays, speeches, whatever. I also organize them into playlists. Don't sleep on the playlists. I do spend a fair amount of time putting those together. There's playlists by author. There's playlists by topic. There are playlists of recommended reading lists for beginning socialists, so check those out. I also sometimes add comments to the texts while I'm reading, similar to if you're making margin notes while reading in a book. I do that too as various ideas occur to me. I also sometimes make efforts while reading the audiobooks to explain difficult concepts that appear in the text, partly for myself and partly for newer listeners, so that everybody can get something out of the audiobook, regardless of sort of whether you've been studying Marxism for 10 years or for 10 days. So. We also do these weekly streams on Twitch, again, twitch.tv slash socialismsforA, usually on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern for several hours. And then I do record and later post the streams to YouTube. The live stream dates and times are announced on the community tab on the YouTube channel, also on Mastodon, Twitter, and Patreon. Even if you're not a patron, I make those public so that you can see them. If all else fails, you can always go to Patreon and see where the um, when the stream is going to be. You, again, usually Wednesdays, and uh, sometimes we do Thursdays as well, particularly if there's like a feature story that I don't get to on Wednesday. Sometimes the Wednesdays, there's a lot of chatting because it's been a while since we all came together. There's a lot of regulars that do attend the live streams and, you know, have questions or things on their mind they want to discuss. So sometimes they spill over into Thursdays, although I try to keep it to Wednesdays when I can. Um, I mentioned we started the YouTube three years ago. We're also on SoundCloud. We're also on Spotify. The SoundCloud, that's last year or so. So there's a lot of stuff up on SoundCloud. The Spotify only started a couple of months ago. So there's less. There's maybe a dozen pieces. I haven't had time to sit down and migrate all the stuff over to Spotify. But as that grows, you know, I will do that. Um, but the last thing that you want to do is really invest a lot of time into something 
before you know exactly how it's going to pan out. For example, um, I recently made an account at the Internet Archive for S4A, and I started uploading a few things that I was also uploading onto Anchor and Spotify. Well, I logged in last night and I found that all my stuff was gone for some apparent terms of service violation. I have absolutely no idea. I mean, and I genuinely mean that. I wasn't really posting anything controversial. I, I don't really know what the problem was at all. But anyway, all of it was gone. So, you know, what would have really sucked is if I had spent, you know, a week posting all my stuff on Internet Archive and then wake up, you know, a week later and it's all gone. That would have been just completely wasted effort. So the channel has been expanding and growing. Uh, I like the pace that it has been expanding and growing at. Welcome to all the new people. And I know that there's various people. Oh, put it on iTunes, whatever. Look, you know, leave that to me. We'll expand as we expand. Anyway. Um, a lot of people ask about Marxist parties or do I endorse a thing or that. Um, I really haven't, I, you know, I've had kind of two recommendations. Well, really, let me put it this way. If you're looking for a Marxist study group or organization, at this point, you might try Politsturm. Check them out. They also have a YouTube channel, but it's connected with an organization and it's international. It's in the U.S., it's in Russia, I believe also Armenia and Ukraine. And um, the Russian channel is quite large, it's about 50,000 subscribers. The U.S. English language channel is smaller. But they do study groups and they're more of an organization, as far as not an organization. We have people who, you know, are in contact here and, and are sort of uh, in communication with each other. But this isn't an organization. Uh, there are various parties and things in the U.S., I don't know that any of them are the party we really need right now, but I do encourage people to get involved in their local left, to network and to become familiar with the existing parties, unions, and other groups that are engaging in class struggle in your local area. So that can be your city, if you're not in a city, maybe your county or your state or a region of your state or something like that. Um, I know that in rural areas it can be kind of hard to find the class struggle sometimes, although it just might not be on your radar personally. However, if you network with your local left, whatever it is, if it's a DSA chapter, if it's a Green Party, if whatever's going on there, people who've been involved in it longer might know of things that are not quite as obvious. So that's why you need to network with other local leftists, even if they're not Marxists. However, uh, we do also need to build the Marxist left as well. I would consider that something of a separate project. Um, anyway, so yeah, look for groups uh, engaging in class struggle in your area. However, this doesn't include Democrats, the Democratic Party. They are completely owned by the 1%, and they're not a suitable forum for ideological struggle, in my opinion. So anyway, you know, overall, the U.S. left needs, I think, a lot of political maturity. It needs to go through a lot of political growth and, you know, maturation of its thought process. And, you know, if if it takes being in DSA for a couple of years and kind of figuring out what works and what doesn't work, and that's going to be the way to move forward, then so be it. I don't think things like that are the end of the line by any means. Um, they're better than nothing. You know, a lot of times people will join the Democratic Party as a leftist. They'll try to be part of some 
progressive upsurge in the Democratic Party, then they quickly find out that it goes nowhere and that that party can't be reformed. And then they drop out entirely of politics. So that's um, not good, <laughs> is that you know people try working in the Democratic Party, then quit. What we need is more people sticking in the left and continuing with their political education and the advancement of their class consciousness and things like that. So whatever the next step is that people are ready to take, I'd rather see them take it, even if they're making mistakes. Now, we, in building the Marxist left, I think can help people along and speed that process and maybe help them skip a few steps by explaining things to them. But if they're not ready to listen to us and they haven't seen from their own experience that we are correct, mainly because maybe they have no experience and they're just going in very naive and saying, no, we can do it this way. And we're saying, no, that's been tried for literally 200 years. It's not going to work. Um, maybe after they fail two or three times, they'll come back and listen. So I would rather that they do go out and fail than do absolutely nothing. Hence, you know, I mean, the Bernie thing was a debacle. We'll talk more about this later again, because Bernie Sanders knew goddamn well that the Democratic Party can't be reformed. Yet he led tens of millions of people who want radical change into that party. Now, a lot of those people got frustrated and dropped out. Some of them joined the Greens or they joined PSL or they joined CPUSA or they joined some other um, left party and they're continuing to hang in and fight. I'd like to see more of that because I do think it's part of the uh, maturing process. You know, there were some prominent Bolsheviks that started out in the Russian Revolution not as Bolsheviks. They were Mensheviks and, you know, more of what we would call like a Radlib or Sokdem today. And they saw through their experiences, um, you know, that there were mistakes being made and they changed their position. I think we need to see more of that. And, you know, I didn't um, arrive at my positions overnight either. It was after years and years of activism. And, um, thinking through different positions that are on the U.S. political landscape. And, you know, the, the more that we can encourage that, the better, while again, trying to be that organized vanguard of class consciousness that can advise people in methods that are informed by history and that uh, are, you know, actually going to lead people to the desired outcome as quickly as possible. All right, I think that's a long-winded enough introduction, but there are a lot of new people, and I just want to explain uh, what's going on. So as far as what's new on the channel, last week we did two streams, live stream number 87 and 88. Check those out if you haven't already. Um, I think some quality content in there, particularly uh, looks at Chinese capitalism. Uh, there are still socialist elements in China. However, there are growing, rapidly growing, capitalist elements. And this is getting overlooked, I think, by a lot of the fervently uh, pro-China revisionist Marxist-Leninists who, I, again, I think are not looking closely enough at the real movement of capital within China and, um, you know, how that should inform uh, our position towards China in terms of are these strategies that make sense or are they counter-revolutionary, etc. So we're going to be doing some more readings on that as well. Um, so anyway, two streams. Also, we did the final three chapters of Anti-During Part 1 by Engels. Uh, 
which is the 20th entry in the basic Marxist-Leninist study guide playlist, which is really the backbone of this channel. We've got seven more readings to go. There are six more main ones, and then there's a seventh essay by Movimiento Anti-Imperialista, which is the organization that put out that curriculum, and it's their theory of reconstitution of the Communist Party. Is That's the 27th, so that's where we're at. Um, it's a six and a half hour audiobook, so it feels like a lifetime in the making recording that thing, but it is up now. And um, so speaking of that, uh, what's next as far as readings now that we've gotten that done? Well, I have five short readings planned. I want to do uh, William Hinton's The Great Reversal, The Privatization of China, 1979 to 1989. That's uh, from 1990. There's another essay someone else uh, recommended called The Late Cultural Revolution, which is about understanding what happened uh, in the mid-70s um, as the Chinese Cultural Revolution ended and then the, quote, market reforms or capitalist restoration came in afterwards. Um, I also want to look at, um, you know, as I was collecting various readings for some different things, you know, we're doing the Politsturm uh, recommended reading list. We're doing the American Party of Labor recommended reading list. We're doing the Marxist-Leninist reading hub uh, recommend, well, not really recommended list, but their curriculum. We're trying to read all those on the channel because those are basic works of Marxism that are important to read. Um, what else are we doing? We did almost all of Hakim's recommended reading list, the Hakim, the YouTuber. Uh, we just have imperialism, Lenin's imperialism left to go on that, which is at the end of the basic Marxist Leninist study guide. So we're doing all of those. And one of the things is Maurice Cornforth's three-volume work on dialectical materialism. And I also want to cover uh, a work by David Guest. But before we get to those, Cornforth also wrote an interesting piece, and it's not too long. It'll probably be about a 40-minute audiobook. 1956, The Theory of Socialist Revolution, which is um, a look at Stalin, which I would say is two-thirds positive and one-third heavily critical. I think it's an interesting kind of balanced look from what I've skimmed of it so far. But um, those four pieces, the three volumes of his series on dialectical materialism as a philosophy and way of thinking, um, and then that theory of socialist revolution, that's all that's posted on Marxist Internet Archive. And uh, I wanted to kind of take a look at that before we got into Cornforth's uh, other work. After that, we're going to be doing um, the next entry in the Homeless Industrial Complex playlist that we are working on called Infrastructures of Community. Uh, there's another short piece that accompanies that I've already recorded, but I'm waiting to post it until Infrastructures of Community because they're really, you can't understand the shorter piece so much without the, uh, the bigger piece to go with it for context. Um, but it is fairly long. It's like 30 PDF pages with pretty small text. So that'll take a little while. Um, there's also a, a video called Justiceville that will be part of that uh, homeless industrial complex reader thing. Um, if you're interested in that, it, we won't be getting to that for a couple of weeks still, but you can look at the playlist and there's a link to download all of the readings as a zip file. So I would recommend checking that out if that's a topic that interests you. We have a housing and homelessness crisis in the United States. and um, you know, when we're talking about organizing the proletariat, dispossessed workers who have nothing to sell but our labor, 
Uh, building up the labor movement means reducing some of the vulnerabilities uh, and you know weaknesses in the labor movement and having people who aren't even housed and many unhoused people work are part of the workforce you know they work for wages they make money but they still can't get out of uh, being homeless they can't get into housing so you know homelessness is a structural problem it's not a personal failing uh, it's a result of a lack of affordable housing primarily there's other factors that go into it structurally such as deindustrialization and the shipping of jobs overseas so there are fewer um, sort of you know entry-level jobs and things like that also the slashing of the social safety net all of this has contributed to the rise of homelessness in the neoliberal era which really wasn't the type of phenomenon that it is now prior to this era um, anyway, after that, we're going to get into the next three installments in the basic Marxism-Leninism study guide. So that's going to be number 21, uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, number 22, Theses on Feuerbach, and 23, Wages, Price, and Profit, aka Value, Price, and Profit. So that's what's coming up as far as readings. We'll be streaming in the meantime as well, but that's what we've got there. So anyway, before we even get into odds and ends, let's say hi to the chat. There's 46 people in here now, so what's what's going on in the chat so far? All right. Yeah, it was a pretty good week. I'm glad that it is now officially spring, and I saw people posting things about daylight savings time and this and that. You know, I don't like um, that they switch daylight savings time so much. I find that it makes the winter, like, a little harder to deal with. Um, but as far as, you know, keeping standard time or the daylight savings time i feel like the daylight savings schedule for me works better uh but anyway i'm just glad that spring is back and it's not so dark and yes the occasional cloudy day can be nice if it's been like super sunny that can be a little overstimulating it's nice to have you know a cloudy day once in a while to just sort of have a chill day too many of them can kind of be a bummer um but anyway yeah Happy spring, everyone. Let's see what else is going on here. Uh, why are you... Yeah, anyway, I'm going to go into that again. I'd love to discuss the Kurds and Zapatistas, the stream, if we can get around to it. Um, probably not. Had someone in a comment section suggest that they were examples of successful, quote, non-authoritarian socialist projects. Uh, I don't even know where to begin with the, like, anti-authoritarian stuff. It's largely bunk, but anyway, uh, and I don't know much about either group. Uh, we're not going to get to that today, unfortunately. Even for studied Marxist-Leninists, the playlists are very helpful. I think so. I mean, it's... You can never read too much Lenin, and it's always good to sort of um, touch base on the fundamentals again. Yeah, any kind of organized armed insurgency is going to be, I mean, somewhat... It's sort of a juvenile delusion that there can be some sort of non-authoritarian movement at all. That That's not to say that, you know, one person makes all the decisions and then thousands of people just do exactly what they say with no input. But I think there's a lot of sort of, um, in the anarchist world, 
a lot of very idealist preconceptions that need to be I think that these people need more experience in real world movements because if you've ever been involved in an organization that uses consensus decision making for example you see that it has to be limited consensus can be very good um and and you know it can be a good part of brainstorming sessions and there are certain decisions where you're going to want unanimity it's not practical to do that on every kind of thing and so this is you know within democratic centralism um the sort of anarchist objection is even though their opinion may be in the minority they don't want to respect the opinion of the majority and this really can result in a non-functional organization if you're making everything where 80%, 90% of people have to agree on it. There comes a point where that's just not feasible. And if you've been in a real world organization, you would know that. Now, it's great to set it, you know, even at 60, 70%, what it, like, whatever is actually going to work uh, for your group. And of course, you know, the percentage of majority or supermajority is not entirely the point. There are other dynamics to be considered as well. But um, I think there's a lot of naivete in, involved in people coming up with some of those conclusions about, you know, things being authoritarian or not. You, you either kind of like the direction that the organization is going in and the, the principles and basis of the organization in the mission that it's pursuing or, or you don't. And I think that may be more of the issue, actually. You know, we talked about um, the need for the political maturation of the U.S. working class. And a lot of it is overcoming the kind of petty bourgeois individual, you know, me, me, I'm super exceptional and special. Uh, I can do things as just an individual and this and that. We need to shake off more of that because that gets instilled in you by your basic socialization in the U.S. You're taught to think as an individual. You might in the lower grades in kindergarten get some emphasis on cooperation and the need to cooperate. However, most of your socialization is based around um, individualism uh, and competition. And that gets carried over when people, you know, in their late teens or 20s start becoming more socially conscious and then try to get political, and you're bringing that petty bourgeois individualism into your politics, and you wind up an anarchist, it's not effective. So that, again, I think is part of the, uh, you know, we're, we're out to help improve the left at Socialism for All through broad-based agitation and education. That's one of, I think, the major sticking points in the U.S. right now. Is this a socialist channel or Marxist? Well, Marxists are socialist. So, but I think that by the graphic with the hammer and sickle, you might guess that this is a Marxist channel. So yeah, anyway, anti-revisionist, Marxist, Leninist, that's what I would say. There are other things calling themselves socialist, which are not Marxist. Marxists would really, uh, Marx and Engels started out with a thorough criticism of all the existing socialist trends. And by criticizing them and running them through the filter of uh, dialectical materialism, historical materialist analysis, emerged with scientific socialism, what we call Marxism today. And um, so there's other kinds of socialism. Mostly these have all been, you know, uh, from a Marxist perspective, 
debunked and criticized to the point where they shouldn't really be followed anymore. And you can find very specific uh, satires and criticism of them by Marx and Engels and Lenin and other major contributors to this ideology. It's not like this discussion, you know, in the US, the average working person has no real idea of the you know 175 to 200 year history of socialism per se and all the different currents within it that have been in dialogue with each other criticizing each other unless you get down to reading Marx and Engels and Lenin and so on then you find all of the discussions that have been had and the political questions that you know for example Kautsky versus Lenin in World War One who held the line for workers' revolution and who wound up stabbing the working class in the back with an opportunist endorsement of World War I. So it's things like that. Why we're doing this education is to show people you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to go around in circles and waste a lot of time that we don't have. Um, what you do need to do is get educated. Marx and Engels started out criticizing the anarchists and the utopian socialists and other trends within the left broadly and uh, we don't have to reinvent all that we can read them see it in practice judge its merit with our own you know uh, mental faculties and if you consider it to be valuable then you know you can skip to the head of the line there you don't have to go through all that yourself so that's why we study history and study theory which in Marxism are closely linked it is scientific so the experiments are based on theory, and then the theory is updated based on the experiments. So, Capitalism is communism in decay. No, not even close. Uh, capitalism is a mode of production that overthrew feudalism several hundred years ago. It's characterized by private ownership of industry and um, a capitalist state that still maintains some ties to the overthrown feudal reaction which the capitalists use to protect themselves against the dispossessed working class, the proletariat that capitalism has created, or at least expanded to be the overwhelming majority of society, what we could call the 90% or the 99%. Um, and then socialism is when the working class takes over, abolishes the rule of the capitalist class, sets up a proletarian state to enforce our class rule, constructs socialism. Socialism is a transitional stage between capitalism and communism. Some people, including Lenin, have even referred to communism as um, the transitional stage, but saying that um, early communism right after the revolution is incomplete or unfulfilled communism or something like that. So anyway, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, generally people talk about it as socialism is the transitional stage between capitalism and communism. Communism is the end of class society when everyone has the same class status. In other words, there's not owners and workers. It's just everyone has the same relationship to the means of production and it's held in common. Um, but, yeah, socialism is... the. The point is there's a transitional stage. It's not all done. You still have to fight capitalism. You'll have a revolution in one country and then not in another. So immediately there, you have a position where the revolution has begun, but it's incomplete. And where we're at now is the revolution was begun in countries like 
well, what became the USSR, and then that was overthrown by counter-revolution and capitalism was restored. Now we have to get it, we have to get socialism back again, which means another proletarian or workers' revolution. So this is an ongoing dynamic thing. Socialism is this transitional stage or lower communism is this stage where we're still fighting off capitalism. Once capitalism has really been put down, you can move on to sort of full communism, but that's uh, not on the immediate horizon right now. Do Chinese school kids not get a Marxist education? How can there be so much capitalist reaction and bourgeois development in China after a revolution? It just boggles my mind. Um, I don't know all the specifics on that. What I do know is that revisionists have no problem um, calling them calling their version of Marxism Marxism, if you know what I mean. So you can get a quote Marxist education, which is in fact heavily revisionist, yet it will still have some of the you know, there will be certain revisionist distortions in there, but it will still be Marxist in the sense that some of the concepts are there. Um, but what we can see from black shirts and reds, for example, kind of the common refrain, um, it seems like what was being taught in the late USSR certainly was not something that put the population in a position when the 80s came around and capitalism was being restored, where the population was able to really identify and do something about it so yeah i mean once the revisionism sets in um that's it's probably not that long of a path before counter-revolution anyway we'll talk about this more when we um, get into one of the features today Jesus, you have a person saying, I am a semi-troll. Tell you what, semi-troll, um, you're going to sit out the rest of the um, chat today because I just, this, you're kind of uh, distracting the rest of the commenters. I'll let you back in at the end, but you can, you can just watch today. How does that sound? All right. Yeah, it seems like a good place to start a discussion on authoritarianism would be ask the person whether it's an anarchist or liberal or whatever ask them what authoritarianism even is it, that would be you know a good start and maybe you can reach some sort of agreement that it's not an on off switch of like something is either authoritarian or not uh luna oi has a good i think series of videos on democratic centralism which is that Democracy and centralism exist on a spectrum. They have a dialectical relationship. It's not all one way or the other. And, you know, I, I know it'd be simpler if it was all one way or the other, but it's not. I would, I would recommend those videos um, to, you know, get something of an understanding of that. <clears throat> all right. Yeah, it tends to be a knee-jerk, quote, unjust hierarchies, which is empty rhetoric speaking as an ex-long-term anarchist. You know, Stalin's um, Anarchism or Socialism goes into, it's like a two-hour audiobook. I have it up on the channel. Uh, it goes into some pretty good explanations about anarchists putting the individual liberation before anything else. Marxists also seek individual liberation, but liberation of the individual, according to Marxism, occurs through uh, liberation of the class to which the individual belongs. 
So in other words, right now, the bourgeoisie, the capitalists, have liberty or, you know, well, they have liberty because they belong to the capitalist class. So they get as much freedom as you practically can have in this society because they're in that class and workers do not. So how do workers get liberation? By just, quote, increasing liberty? No, because we have class society. Class is a major contradiction that's going to determine a lot of what happens in your life. And um, if you're just increasing liberty, the people who are in the ruling class, it's just going to increase their power to oppress you. Um, so the way that Marxists seek uh, liberation of the individual is through liberation of the class to which we belong. In other words, liberation of the proletariat. And everyone in the proletariat can actually effectively use those freedoms. Um, within capitalism, liberty is kind of a meaningless notion to workers if you don't have the economic security, if you're being exploited, which is the nature of capitalism. Extraction of surplus value, um, that's, that's, that's not freedom. That's oppression. That's exploitation. So anyway... Individualism is so pushed by our capitalist class uh, and society precisely because of how weak we are individually. There's no strength in the individual. The capitalists know this and are intensely organized along class lines. It's about time we do the same. Yes, it's long overdue for us to do the same. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in the U.S. probably listening to this who want change, who desperately want change. Are you willing to fight for it? Because if you're not, it's not going to happen. And we have to organize as a class and fight for it. All right. Uh, let's see what else we have going on here. Even citizens of the USSR who were class conscious enough to mount violent resistance to the destruction of the USSR, again, this is the early 90s, lacked the proper ideology to effectively counter said destruction. In the end, even the anti-revisionists were, to an extent, revisionist. Well, yeah, so part of the issue, too, I think, is um, where would they be able to organize? When we get into that section about the terminal revisionism and downfall of the USSR, the political crack-up of the USSR due to the restoration of capitalism, and then, uh, consequently, the economic crack-up because the economy was tied to the government, um, there's people like Nina Andre, and I always screw up her name. Um, I'm going to say the wrong thing, so I'm just... Andreeva, Nina Andreeva. I want to do some um, works by her because there was a resistance to Gorbachev in the mid-'80s. Uh, the question was sort of where could these people organize? You know, because at that point, revisionism was the official policy, and so you could get the weight of the state coming down on your head. I mean, there was a certain amount of room within the party to debate it and resist it. Clearly, it was not sufficient. So anyway. All right, a couple of other comments, but we, we got to move on to just keep things on track for today. Try not to go for, you know, uh, too long. So let's get into the odds and ends right now of, um, of uh, yeah, what's, what's new. Okay, so as a random note, we're going to get into some Twitter shit. This is not really drama so much. It's just stuff I saw that is maybe a teachable moment. Um, first of all, trending and search have not been working for me. 
And I tried this on more than one uh, computer and anyway, trending and search have not been working. Here's what I get instead. Where did I put it? Um, I have no idea where I put that. Anyway, every single time I either search on something or I hit something that's trending in the sidebar, I just get a blank screen and it says, something happened, but don't worry, it's not your fault. It's been a fucking week. It's been a week. So I don't know if uh, you know Twitter is melting down or they're planning to make search a paid function. I do not pay for Twitter and I never fucking will. Um, <laughs> Or, you know, if trending is going to become like a paid feature. It, the, today is day six or seven, I guess, that that has not been working for me. Um, so, yeah, things are trending. I have no idea. But uh, if that is unintentional on Twitter's part, holy fuck is Elon Musk doing a just terrible job searching and trending. Oh, I can't see quote tweets either. If I click quote tweets, it gives me the same thing. It just gives me an error message. So I can't read quote tweets and I can't uh, see, I can't do a search and I can't see what's trending either. So this has been a week now and um, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. It seems to be widespread. I read of other people having this problem too. Not, not such a good look for um, Twitter moving forward. So anyway, there was that. Um, again, starting with just some more light stuff. I uh, happened to see this just, just before coming in to do the stream. X-Men 97, executive producer Bo DeMaio, reveals that the series story is informed by his experience as a black gay man. Guess what the comments were like? Just fucking cancer. Just cancer. Um, and, you know, I, I responded. I have a certain fondness for the X-Men, honestly. I think, you know, s superhero things, by and large, are kind of stupid. And, uh, you know, that said, I have a certain fondness for the X-Men. Um... And, uh, you know, I just had to respond to this PSA to the white boy fash squad whinging about this, which is really, I mean, it was comment after comment of just like, you know, uh, go woke, go broke, all this kind of like, well, I'm glad to know that it wasn't for me then. I said, you know, X-Men was always about people who were born different and struggled to exist in a world that hated and feared them for no good reason just like you do to people of color and LGBTQ plus people and anyone else who is not exactly fucking like you. So yeah, I guess X-Men never really was for you. Um, and uh, commenter there, there's Senator Robert Kelly and the fascist government in the X-Men universe. These people don't realize like who they are. They always identify with the heroes no matter what, whether there's any reality to that at all. Just really time for just a reality check. Speaking of, there was um, a commenter, and I'm not going to post their name or anything. Here's uh, Sal from Thin Blue Lies and the Red Army um, commenting on it. There was a post that went kind of viral about, whoa, Tucker Carlson, you know, posted a video clip. And they're like, wow, he's like being right here. What is it? And if you go down into the comments, a lot of people are like, I think Tucker's right because he's been hanging out with Jimmy Dore is why. No, no. So as Sal said, y'all need to stop being surprised when a fascist can identify an issue that a socialist would. That's their whole game, to steal and co-opt. You do not have to hand it to them. 
literally they're trying to steal our movement. They're trying to corrupt any inkling of class consciousness that has developed and they're trying to spin it to the right. That's literally what fascism is all about is a decoy movement when socialism becomes a threat to capitalism. You know, capitalism, when it goes into distress, when it goes into crisis, um, particularly when it's in danger of a workers uprising, they roll out fascism as a decoy. And so, no, that's that's literally exactly what they do here. Luna Oi, Vietnamese communist and YouTuber, um, reiterates, and there's the post. Why does Tucker Carlson keep being right? Seriously, what is happening? Luna says it's called opportunism and demagoguery. Fascists have always tried to recuperate and cynically use left-wing talking points and positions to force their agendas forward. If really, it should not be confusing at all. Um, so then, uh, I, random, you know, first name, bunch of numbers uh, commented. I think his position is, meaning Tucker's position, is too complex for you. He's neither populist nor elitist. Interesting, because I happen to have a video posted at the channel that is, um, let me get the title for you. I think uh, I, I, uh, I don't think I have this one laying around. Um, I would play it on stream otherwise. Yeah, so the title is Tucker Carlson, quote, I've never been a populist. I'm an elitist. Populism is a warning sign. So the entire thing of this video, again, available at Socialism for All, um, it's like a minute and 15 second clip where he is asked, you know, when I hear uh, about Tucker Carlson, it's always Tucker Carlson populist. Are you a populist? And he's like, no, his voice goes up about three octaves. He's indignant and refuses the label vehemently. You know, I've never been a populist. Um, and then he goes on to make really, really stupid arguments for why he believes in elitism, such as, well, my dogs are hierarchical. Yeah, it's not actually a good argument for making human society, um, you know, exactly modeled after canine social interactions. So here, I actually do have the, um, I have the video here. We'll just, we'll play it because it is, uh, it is pretty quick. Let me just grab this. All right, here we go. So I often read you described as a populist. It's Tucker Carlson, populist. Are you a populist? No, I've never been a populist. I'm an elitist in the sense that I believe that all societies are hierarchical. You know, dogs are hierarchical. My dogs are, all dogs are. All animals are hierarchical. There's always someone in charge. So I, I don't believe in pure egalitarianism mm -hmm. at all. I've never made that case. What I think is that populism is a warning sign that your system's about to collapse. Populism is the last stop before dictatorship, you know, always. And so the second you get a populist movement brewing, you need to stop and ask yourself, what gave rise to this? What did I do wrong that allowed space for this? But no, my argument is not against elites. My argument is against the shitty elites we have who have no idea what they're doing and won't admit it who are small-minded and who are very different from previous generations of elites in the following way. They feel no responsibility to those below them. Yeah, so so much for neither populist nor elitist. He literally is saying populism is a warning sign. Okay, so he's not populist, 
for sure. Uh, but nor elitist, he just made like a complex argument, although a bad argument, for elitism. So this takes some severe mental gymnastics to sort of buy into something like that. But he spelled it out for you. He just wants different elites. He wants to keep the system the way it is, but just get different elites who have more of a sense of honor in the way that they exploit and oppress their people. You know, like, like the good old days, the way that they used to do it in the past. I mean, are you talking about the Trail of Tears or like, uh, you know, the Jim Crow era? Like, what exactly are you pointing to as far as this golden age of enlightened elitism? Okay, so he just spelled it out for you right there. Uh, populism is a warning sign. It's your standard, you know, someone always has to be, uh, anyway, standard anti-communist pablum. That's what you're getting from Tucker Carlson. But people are acting like he's doing some kind of, you know, brilliant magic trick. No, he isn't. This isn't 4D chess and being manipulated by fascists is just not the uh, enlightened, bold, progressive position that you think it is. This has to be wholeheartedly rejected and, you know, everywhere that you see it. All right, anyway. Um, switching topics. So another note uh, just about the, the ongoing dialogue that is happening about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I saw this speech from Mick Wallace, who is an Irish um, left-wing, uh, what do you call it, deputy representative um, in, in the European, um, parliament. So, uh, in the speech, let, let's play the speech first. Well, you know what? Let's not. So anyway, his tweet, let's read the tweet first. Let's do that. If we want a stronger Europe, we must prioritize peace over war. There's always an alternative to war. Sadly, Russia didn't take it. NATO's expansion eastwards didn't help matters. Neither did U.S. NATO interference in Ukraine since 2014. Neither does the EU's failure to promote peace. I thought that was good, and this is why. I mean, there's, there's also flaws with it, and it could be criticized from a communist perspective. We'll get to that at the end, because I feel like there's still more fundamental questions that need to be addressed first, as far as some of the errors that I'm seeing. And I'd like to make this clear also. There's a long-term supporter of this channel whose you know, input I value, who made a comment on a recent stream like, well, you got to be careful because if you criticize Russia too much, then you end up siding with the U.S. No, uh, you really don't. And first of all, I, I hope at S4A it's clear we're not endorsing the U.S. under any circumstances. That's not what's happening. The reason that I've been hammering on the Russia good shit so much, or ha hammering against it to be clear, is because I see that as the primary error being made among self-described, quote, communists. It's not a that it's 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 a mistake. So that's the reason I've been you know hounding on that. When we see less of that, I'll be happy to um, back off of saying it so much. If it seems like I'm emphasizing that so much, the U.S. part, yeah, we leave that to people like Vosh and stuff, and like Dylan Burns to support you know the U.S. and and uh, say that you know the U.S. is this uh, benevolent dictator that is going to be spreading you know, um, market socialism or whatever the fuck like Bosch believes. So, um, <laughs> just it boggles the mind. No, that's very much not the perspective. However, the, um, going over to Russia good is another mistake. 
So what I said about this speech is this is how you do it. To make it clear, criticize Russia first for their active capitalist aggression in invading Ukraine. Because prior to that invasion, what you had was a long-standing tension. And there was a portion of Ukraine that had tried to secede and the rest of Ukraine wasn't going for that, etc. That That is a situation. Um, however, prior to that, you, you also had... Well, anyway, this goes all the way back to 1991. That's the point. So criticize Russia first for the act of capitalist aggression in invading Ukraine, then criticize NATO, the EU, USA for their role in setting up the conflict, which does go all the way back to 1991 and prior. The anti-communist fight to destroy the USSR. If the USSR still existed, we wouldn't be having the situation at all. Okay? I mean, it's... it's a, I can't tell you how different history would be if uh, the USSR had not first, you know, been dragged down into revisionism and then completely disrupted and then um, dissolved and capitalism completely restored. We were dis discussing this on the last stream somewhat too, where somebody was like, no, actually, if the USSR still existed, it would be worse. Uh, no. And the examples they were trying to cite were Grozny. And it was like, no, that happened after the USSR. Uh, was destroyed, etc. So the people sort of trying to put that out as a talking point are very, very deeply confused and misinformed. So anyway, yes, NATO basically existed as an anti-communist uh, military bloc trying to win the Cold War. You know, they uh, fought against fascism in World War II. Then after the end of the war, they sided with all the former fascists, essentially against the communists and won, sadly, they won the Cold War. And that's why we're here today. And that's why we're even in a position where Russia could do something like invading Ukraine. Anyway, we're now dealing with capitalists across the board. As socialists, our interest is in social revolution. So understanding none of these powers as socialist, you know, this, this is what we're trying to keep in mind here. Anyway, I'll play the clip of him talking and we'll go from there. We're talking about a stronger EU in the world. If we want a stronger EU in the world, we'll have an EU that prioritizes peace rather than war. There is always an alternative to war. When Russia invaded Ukraine, it was 100% illegal. There was an alternative and they didn't take it. But NATO's expansion eastwards didn't help matters either. It helped to destabilize the area. US and NATO involvement in Ukraine since 2014 haven't helped matters. The failure of the EU to engage in diplomacy and dialogue since the war started hasn't helped matters. Our support for wars in Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq hasn't helped matters. What kind of a strong Europe do you want in the world? The world is not interested in war, but we're promoting it. We're militarizing Europe. We're increasing the profits of the arms industry. Why are we going down this path? Whatever happened to the Europe that wanted peace? We're losing the plot we are. We're pumping arms now into Ukraine on the basis that oh, Ukraine are going to win. There's nobody going to win the war in Ukraine. This is absolute madness. And the Ukrainians are, more, are going to die more and more every day as long as we keep pumping arms into a live war. Okay, 
So decent messaging that is to the left, I would say, of, um, you know, a lot of the like Russia's doing God's work kind of stuff that you see out there. So I agree with that. Now, can we keep uh, criticizing it from the left? Yes. So um, a couple of statements in there. If we want to see a stronger EU, we need one that prioritizes peace. Is that something that the EU can do along a capitalist basis? No, because this is in the nature of capitalism. So as far as asking, you know, as if it is a rhetorical question, why militarization? Why is the EU pursuing militarization, etc.? This is due to the nature of capitalism. As long as Europe is capitalist, it can't do anything else. Now, the working class building itself up as a counterpower can make demands for it to do something else. But the capitalist... Um, you know, they say, we don't want war. Yeah, the majority of the population doesn't. However, the capitalists need it when negotiations between capitalists break down and turn into armed conflict. So the capitalists don't care. They don't die. They don't send their children to die. And they have the money to get out of the combat zones for the most part. So they don't care if uh, the inner capitalist tensions do explode into war. That's something that they can survive and ride out and they will send us workers to kill each other, you know, pump us full of nationalism and then send us into battle. So as far as, you know, asking why militarization, why is Europe doing this? It shouldn't be asked in an open-ended sort of rhetorical way as if it is this mysterious thing. As, as Marxists, we can tell you clearly why. It's in the nature of capitalism and this has been studied and written about time and time again. So again, you know, hopefully this is clear here about as we work toward um, messaging about this, you know, no war but class war, do not support. You know, they, there are contradictions between various capitalist powers. Even within the governments, there are contradictions within, for example, the U.S. government. There are contradictions, disagreements, um, conflicts of interest between different factions of capitalists, which to be clear, are all part of the ruling class, but are not in complete alignment in terms of all their interests. So you get some contradictions. None of these, though, are in the interest of the working class, really. Um, and the same goes with the capitalist order across the globe as well. So there have been certain instances in history where um, you know very weak proletarian movements in countries that were primarily peasant based, for example, where it was a very small proletariat because capitalism wasn't very developed, have allied under communist supervision with um, rising capitalists uh, as part of national liberation movements. As far as, you know, advanced countries in Europe, Russia, the United States, we're so far past that point. Um, this is just pure opportunism. It's not justified at all. So anyway, uh, you know, I consider the Russia good stuff uh, a right deviation. Uh, you know, the, the Mick Wallace speech we just listened to is being to the left of that. And I think you can still criticize it further from the left, although it's better than a lot of the stuff out there. Anyway, putting that out there. And we will come back to the chat in a minute. I just want to get some more. Um, oh, to be clear, Mick Wallace is from Independence for Change within Ireland, a small sort of left wing uh, party. And then he's in the left uh, or the party is in the left block in the uh, European Parliament. Now, continuing to talk about uh, politics for a minute, um, let's talk Democrats for a minute. 
uh, get out the the nose plugs. So there was a video going around. I just can't even with this. Um, I am politics girl. Okay, this is person Democratic Party operative calling herself um, politics girl. I mean, she's like 50, but okay, politics girl. That's fine. Um, I retweeted that. So she said, democracy is on the ropes. We have to be single-minded and strategic now. We won't get another chance. You know, I said, I refuse to endure any more of the Democrats. We must save democracy bullshit. That clearly is not what their 1% owned and controlled in power since 1828 party is about. Like the Republicans, Democrats are about expanding the U.S. corporate empire abroad and the police surveillance austerity state here at home. Um, she got ratioed so hard on this video. Um, she's also, when I say she's just a Democratic Party operative, I mean, she made posts like this, like the previous week. I'm not going to lie. Secretary Pete Buttigieg is one of my favorite people in government. Okay, so no one who is not being paid can make a statement like that. Anyway, um, let's watch this video. I'm going to kill you all with cringe right now. Let's watch this video. And again, the comments on this, look up this thread. I'll, I'll be putting a link to it. Oh my God. Listen, Democrats, can we please stop talking about primarying Joe Biden? Who should run against Joe Biden? Will Democrats get behind Joe Biden? This many Democrats want an alternative to Joe Biden. Can we just not? The absolute last thing democracy needs right now is a Democratic primary. We're in late stage. You, you just have to love that. The last thing democracy needs is a vote. <laughs> you know, as somebody said, if democracy is constantly four years away from dying, like, let it die. Let's whatever the fuck is happening. Can we just get it over with? But I think even with the average person now, you know, we've been in the age of social media pretty much just since Obama's 2008 run. And even then, it was like the early adopters that were on Facebook and stuff like that. YouTube was like two years old, I think, at that point. Or Google had just owned it for like two years. So it was really only mainstream for a couple of years. And um, so, yeah, you had maybe one election in 2008 where people were talking about it on social media. Then 2012, a lot more people on social media. 2016, 2020. That's number four. And now we're coming up to 2024. It's the fifth election that has really been seriously discussed on social media where the average person, and of course the average bot as well, but also the average person can get out there and express their opinions on it. And this stuff is just wearing so thin because they also ran the whole, you know, earlier in 2004, in 2000, it was the whole democracy is hanging at the edge of like, you know, on a razor's edge, or as she's saying right here in the caption, we're in late stage capitalism. Please fucking spare me. You're a Democrat on a, with a corrupt Supreme Court, a corrupt Supreme Court. What have you tried to actually do about the Supreme Court? Anything? This goes on, you know, on a knife's edge. So in other words, we have to kill democracy to save democracy. This is the Democratic Party. This is why I say, you know, they're not an anti-fascist party. They work hand in glove. The you know, fascist collaborators are not anti-fascists. So they're sitting here going on the march towards um, whatever the hell we're in now and um, talking about, you know, oh, we got to save it. Well, you know what? Joe Biden was elected. 
And what has he done? He dismantled the COVID response for one thing. What else has he done? Well, she's, she's going to tell us what other good things Joe Biden has done. Keep in mind, this was released on the same day that the Willow Project drilling was announced. Okay, for the env environmental president. Capitalism with a corrupt Supreme Court on a knife's edge between autocracy and democracy, and people want to spend $100 million to undermine our successful incumbent when the alternative is the twice impeached criminal ex president or the man who is single handedly turning Florida into a fascist dictatorship? Why? I know people are excited for. So she says, Why? And then she knows why. She's like, I know everyone hates Joe Biden. He barely beat Trump. He literally just ran on, like, I'm not Trump. Uh, as well as a bunch of lies. He ran, they were going to do, um, well, he ran on the public option, at least on his website, although he didn't say it out loud. Uh, they were going to do $15 minimum wage, and then they let their rotating villain block it, and then there were no real consequences for her doing that because it was really what the party wanted. Um, somebody in the comments showed a recent poll says that, like, Democratic voters under 30, it's like 94%. Uh, do not want Joe Biden. So you think you're going to win this without the youth vote? Like, this is what the Democrats do. So they'll go back to fundraising mode once they lose to the Republicans again. And the U.S. government will just keep flipping. It'll just keep flipping and flipping because one cycle, one party is slightly more hated than the other. And then they burn out whatever credibility that they had. And then it flips to the other party and then they burn out like they don't do anything to help the average person either and this just can't go on forever because again you see a ramping up because people are discussing it so much now online especially and the boomers with their sort of um, neoliberal brainwashing are also just sort of um, being phased out of sort of the population at this point they're getting old this just is not gonna last forever um, so she's like why why are you talking about getting rid of Biden? I know people like want to do something that will actually help themselves and so you know why you just really your job is to sell us fucking garbage. Your job is to tell us to do things that aren't in our interests and to just suck it up because otherwise, you know, we're going to bring the bad cop back in and the Republicans are going to piss in your face and like hit you over the head with a hammer. You know, we won't. We'll give you some lukewarm tap water and like half a candy bar. See, we're the good cop. So this is the game. Are you sick of it? I know I am. And you know, people like Bernie Sanders coming and saying, we're gonna totally transform this party. No, you're fucking not. No, you're not. It hasn't worked at all. Not when you did it, not when it was done before. You can't reform this party. It's locked up by 1% money. We've covered this before in previous streams. Go to open, opensecrets.org. You can see the top Democrats and top Republicans and what industries donated to them. They're virtually identical. Like the top 30 industries are virtually identical. There's a couple of differences, like teachers and public sector unions give to Democrats, and then more of like building trades and construction and railroads give to Republicans. Otherwise, like every other slot is virtually in the same position. It's real estate, it's the medical industry, it's banks and finance, it's the same fucking thing. Like the top 10, for Democratic and Republican, I think eight of them are like identical and just shifted a position or two up and down. They're they're they are virtually the same party. 
Anyway, continuing. Fresh young leaders with bright new ideas, but those fresh young leaders will never get a chance if we don't protect democracy now. The so when? When? Never. Never. Because you've been saying this for decades. And then when they do get power, they never really do anything substantial. You know, I, I say this constantly. If the Democratic Party were serious about ending the corrupt reign of the Republican Party and the threat to democracy and the rising threat to fascism and everything, they would ally with the left to crush the Republican Party. And it could be done. They could enact a broad, uh, you know, platform of reform that people are actually asking for, things like Medicare for all, um, workers' rights, expand union rights, you know, all the kind of things that uh, Bernie Sanders ran on, for example. And they never come even remotely close. They don't even discuss it, really, when they get into power. Instead, dancing to the tune of their corporate paymasters, the same as the people who fund the Republican Party, they just keep this puppet show going between the two parties. And... Yeah, there are some slight differences. It wouldn't be convincing if there weren't. And some of that is organically rooted in the fabric of U.S. society and reflects some real differences in the different um, strategies or philosophies of different sectors of the ruling class in the U.S. and their material interests that in turn spawn some of those ideologies. But when they get into power, the Democrats just simply do not do any of the stuff that needs to be done. For example, sending the Republican Party to the dustbin of history. It could be done. They constantly refuse to do it. So you can't believe a word that they're saying. They're just going to string you along until the day you die. That's what they're going to do. That's the plan. Because the people behind both parties need desperately for the political discourse to stay between their two hand puppets. If it switches to the left at all, they lose that control. And of course, you know, they try to start buying the left as well. But when I refer to the left here, for the purposes of this discussion, we're talking about the portion of the left that they don't control. They need to keep this within their hands because they're trying to stay in power permanently. All right. The fact is, Joe Biden has gotten more accomplished in two years than any president in the history <laughs> of presidents. In an increasingly cynical world, uh, Joe Biden is a decent man with an incredible staff who knows what he's doing and has thoughtful plans for the future of this country that include women's rights and gay rights and workers' rights and voters' rights and higher minimum wage and lower health care Again, the higher minimum wage, lower health care costs, is, what's he waiting for? These are just lies. These are just lies. ...and environmental protections. It could be argued that the biggest reason democracy is winning in this David and Goliath story in Ukraine is because Joe Biden had the foreign policy experience. And so again, that's completely untrue. What's happening in Ukraine is very far right political factions are being propped up in Ukraine, which is mostly what there is in Ukraine. It's a you know country in which capitalism has been restored. And so you get various flavors of capitalist rule. The U.S. is backing the furthest right among them for the most part. And um, head spinning, head spinning. So, I don't know, let's just go on. Let's try to get through this thing. Um, but yeah, the, the David and Goliath story. This is, this is the liberal worldview here. We live in a country with a gigantic, you know, homelessness crisis, student debt crisis, um, on and on. I mean, the, the entire the medical debt crisis, people not being able to get 
medical care, the ongoing COVID natural disaster that they're just folding up all of the protections on. But this is, you know, the triumph of liberal democracy, I guess, according to your Democratic Party. Humility to gather world leaders together and build a coalition to support them. He can run on all of that. We don't need to replace him. We need to spend our time and money giving him a bigger majority in Congress so he can get even more accomplished. Hey, so we need to give him a bigger majority in Congress. Why did they lose the majority? Why did they lose the majority every time? Because they don't do anything that they say that they're going to do to help people. And people are tired of fucking hearing it. So they don't turn out for Democrats. And then the people who are, you know, very the most fascist in their mentality, they continue voting Republican. And there's no effective resistance. You have collusion between the Democrats and the Republicans, not resistance. So all this logic, they've been saying it year in and year out. And this is the actual real world political power situation that we have in the United States. If you want to see this change, we have to organize outside of either of these parties. And the libertarians aren't any better either. Yeah, he's old. He talks old. He's a goofy grandpa who says things like malarkey. Who cares? By every measure. Yeah, that isn't the objection. That's not people's objection to Joe Biden and trying to straw man it like that. Again, she got so shredded for this post. The Democrats are so out of touch. Like the, the vanishingly small handful of people that this kind of argument goes over with. Again, the longer, the more time people spend online becoming politically conscious because fewer the people at this point that don't recognize that some kind of change has to happen in the U.S., I mean, most people have been online for enough years at this point that they're like, hey, something's got to go. These parties absolutely suck. Now, a lot of them are still at the stage of naivete where they're going to believe like a Trump, some like swindler scumbag like that is, um, you know, going to change things. I mean, he was in for four years and didn't, but that doesn't really deter the, a lot of their thinking. Um, anyway, proceeding. Terrible metric. He's an excellent leader. If we didn't have lying propaganda networks and self-serving chaos agents constantly trying to sell us on the idea that he's some demented evil pedophile out to ruin the country, and you just looked at the facts of his presidency on paper, there would be zero debate he was doing a bang-up job. You don't... Yeah, that's not true. There would not be zero debate that he's doing a bang-up job. People who believe this stuff, I... You, if it were sincere, I would feel sorry for them. This person is, of course, paid to say these things. And they're paid to try, why, why are they saying these things? They're saying them to try to get people to believe these inaccurate, false things. So anyway, you don't spend $100 million undermining your own party. So this is how they consider, if they had a primary, hey, if he's really the best guy, what do you have to lose with this primary? But this is what the Democrats continue to show. And what Bernie Sanders demonstrated aptly, in abundance, the Democratic Party doesn't believe in democracy at all. The way that they handled the people backing Bernie Sanders. Uh, now, the problem is that Bernie didn't stand up to them and is still in the party and didn't lead a mass exodus out of the Democratic Party in 2016. That's what should have happened. And the U.S. left could have gone on to either the Greens or some sort of labor coalition of left parties, something like that, that would that have been the end point? Probably not, but it would have been a step forward in the political education and maturation 
of the U.S. working class who are still largely sitting around going, what do we do? I don't know what to do. They have no experience and it's all abstract in their somewhat naive consciousness. Spend a hundred million dollars undermining your own party to defeat someone who's doing a bang up job. You run your successful sitting president and you spend the resources you would have spent on a primary building the infrastructure that will defeat your opposition. But will you do that? Of course they won't. So, you know, there's just one problem with what you're saying. None of it's true. You know, the party who wants to take your vote and force you to have a baby and tell you what you can read and what you can teach and what you can know. The people passing laws to tell people how to dress and how to act and what they can do with their own body. Yeah, so that's all terrible stuff. What's your party doing to fight them? We wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be having to put these desperate fucking videos out, you know, trying to use this, you know, it's the carrot and stick. The carrot is about, uh, you know, there's a little, tiny little speck, there's about a millimeter of carrot, and there's this gigantic um, stick with a chainsaw attached to it to get people to vote Democrat. It's like the Republicans are going to come in and take away all your rights. It's good cop, bad cop, exactly. Unless you vote for us. And they don't care because the same people fund both parties and they're still in charge no matter which party wins. And around and around it goes. Except every time it goes around, this whole scheme, this whole lie, gets thinner, more transparent, easier to see through. And that's my question is when does it finally snap? I know it snapped for me a long time ago, back in like 20 years ago. For other people, it's been, you know, they finally poked through it more recently. And we're trying to steer them as far to the left as we possibly can get them, as far as they're ready to go, trying to raise their class consciousness as much as possible. But, um, yeah, the Republicans suck. No argument here. So why isn't your party crushing them into the dust by allying with the left? That's the story they won't tell you. It's because they're owned by the same people as control the Republicans. Please. The party calling for a national divorce and suggesting that maybe Democrats shouldn't get to vote at all. The party that wants to get rid of everything from social security to public schools who have already passed laws to strip women of their rights and make trans people detransition and force private companies to tow their policy line. You don't give those people the gift of fighting amongst yourselves. You spend your... So it's not fighting amongst yourselves to say Biden isn't doing what we need him to do. Uh, but that's not a decision. I mean, that's not something that the Democrats have ever been interested in really hearing about is what does the average working person think? That's a farce. That's laughable to think that that's what they're doing. They want to go as far to the right as they can while still beating Republicans. And then if they lose, who cares? Because they make a lot of money when they're fundraising as the underdog anyway. Also, when they switch back to being the underdog or the, quote, opposition, not really out of power, then they get to pretend that they're all left wing, just like they did during Trump. Then they get into power. And what do they do? They tell everybody, "Ooh, calm down. Oh, no, we can't do anything because of this excuse or that excuse. And it's the same thing every fucking time. Every time. Are you sick of it? Because I've been sick of it for many years time and money working to put down that fascist authoritarian white Christian nationalist uprising taking over half the country. Joe Biden is better than any alternative the Republicans could put up. So if you Okay. Joe Biden is better than any Republican. When you measure your political standards against the Republican Party of the United States, what kind of standard is that? You're not 
making your political standard what is possible in the society with the technology, with the resources available to you, that's actually the standard you should be holding yourself to is what is possible. Not what are the most despicably reactionary, disgustingly bigoted, uh, politically organized people, what are they doing? Yes, literally anyone could do better than they are doing. That's not the standard that we need to go by. That's why no one enthusiastically votes for you at this point. Or it's, you know, shrinking uh, fewer and fewer people are even holding their nose to vote for you at this point. They don't believe you anymore. It's why I'm a communist. And I left all this nonsense behind. And I'm now pointing out the need to people to organize outside of the Democrat-Republican system. And again, libertarians are literally somehow worse than both, and they're the uh, third largest political party. Continuing. If you want to win, how you feel about him is irrelevant. We don't need a new presidential candidate in 2024. We need to keep the Senate and... So you want to do this stuff. Why, again, are you struggling so badly against this awful, awful party? Is it possibly because people don't view you as that different based on your actions? What are you doing about that? Nothing. There's never an answer to any of this. There's never an answer. They will dangle a progressive in front of you and tell you it's going to be different this time. It never is. We're going to cover AOC in just a minute. So if it's ringing some bells, we're, we're going there in just a minute. Um, why are you struggling so hard against the Republicans? Also, if it doesn't matter what we want, as she just said, let's put it back on the screen, um, how you feel about him doesn't matter. We don't need a new presidential candidate. If what we think doesn't matter, why even pretend this is a democracy at all? Where is the democracy you're trying to save? Why have an election, as one commenter put it, if what we think doesn't matter? You know, they say this stuff out loud, just telling us what to do, what to think, we have no input on it, and yet they're going to mock something like democratic centralism. I guarantee you democratic centralism is a thousand times more democratic than what the Democratic Party is doing. 2024, we need to keep the Senate and flip the House. We need to fill the states with AGs who believe in the rule of law and legislators who believe in democracy. We need to pay attention to our school boards. Our current president is successful and he can win. We need to pick our battles. I mean, just keep telling yourself he's successful. I, I'm not seeing it. I, what are you talking about exactly as far as the success? I see a country with declining life expectancy. I see a country with a homelessness crisis. I see a country with a jobs crisis. I see a country that is probably on the brink of a 2008 style economic crash with a number of banks failing inside of a week that's temporarily cooled off. But, you know, who knows before that picks up again. Nothing about this is successful or working for most average people. So tell me another one. Right now. And a Democratic primary, it just isn't one of them. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, so that's what the Democrats have for you. Now, are we supporting Marianne Williamson? No. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Democratic Party is a fucking dumpster fire. And that's the main point. You need to move left of it. I don't care where you start but move fucking out of the Democratic Party. And, but again, to the left, don't get pulled in this Tucker Carlson shit. 
All right. So I mentioned AOC. Speaking of progressive uh, head fakes and disappointments, AOC, what's what's AOC in the news for right now? So Democracy Now! was covering a rally at a Bronx high school Monday, protested a military recruitment and job fair event. Host, I mean, technically, being in the military is a job. But um, yeah, job fair event hosted by U.S. Congress members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Adriano Espelat. Uh, advocates accuse AOC of backtracking on her anti-war campaign promises. So the AOC campaign responded to this by saying um, the congresswoman didn't hold a job fair or a military recruitment fair. It was a student services affair. Oh, well, let's look at the flyer for it. Here we go. Join to learn about the resources available to students through our district office. We will be joined by special guests from the U.S. Naval Academy, the U.S. Air Force Academy, the U.S. Military Academy, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, the U.S. Department of Education, as well as former congressional interns. Well, I don't know if my counting is off. I haven't, you know, maybe, maybe I'm rusty, but I think five out of seven of those are military, and they're listed first. So those are the, quote, student services. Hey, you didn't learn anything in school and you're looking at your career prospects being bleak, hey, come join the military. Sign up to kill people for corporate empire and maybe die or get maimed or, you know, like permanently disabled um, yourself as well. Doesn't that sound nice? And you can do it all. You can help out corporate empire. Um, I had something else on this. What is it? Yeah, I just mentioned weird though, how the main presenters were in fact military. So um, that's what we got out of Bring the Ruckus AOC. That's going absolutely nowhere. Now, as far as the AOC defenders go, we got one here. Socialism Done Left, who um, unblocked me for some reason. Well, that's fine. So SDL posted new Substack. The DSA is the largest U.S. socialist organization in 99 years and the first mass organ half a century. That's a big fucking deal. So... It's less that that I have a problem with than the graphic. Here you have the utterly insulting insinuation that Bernie and AOC are dragging communists into 21st century relevance. You know, I posted on this, uh, this is from yesterday. This would have had some credibility five or so years ago, but it's 2023 now. Like we've seen what Bernie and AOC have actually done and it's time to take those political lessons to heart learn from them, and move the fuck on. You know, it's fine to go through a process. We don't all start out knowing everything. Some of us start closer to accuracy than others, but for most of us, there's at least some learning curve. That's fine. But stop posting this shit in 2023, trying to insinuate that Bernie and AOC are, um, you know, winning, winning out over... Um, Okay, let's, let's, let's continue. So they go on, in that time period, Socialist Alternative lost their single elected position. Um, okay, I mean, that's not something that is really something for SDL to be celebrating, I guess. But anyway, CPUSA supported Dems in every election. Okay, but so is DSA supporting Dems and Again, we're not, that's a revisionist like position that CPUSA is pursuing and no serious communist supports that. Socialists won five more U.S. House seats 
with DSA rank and file support. Were they Democrats though? Because why are you criticizing other organizations, which by the way are, you know, I mean, CPUSA at least being opportunists there, um, you're doing the same thing that, they, that you're criticizing them for. None have managed to turn the tide on US deunionization, but DSA Ewok is sure damn trying. Criticizing DSA or its members is always fine, DSA isn't a democratic centralist org after all. I don't think you understand how Demcent works. But criticism without comparing to the alternatives is no plan for political action. What group has achieved more? And I think these are mostly really the wrong questions. They did respond to me directly. Um, I said, your meme shows Bernie and AOC dragging a communist against his will into relevance, but all they've actually done is drag people wanting change into the 1% owned Democratic Party where change is not possible. And Bernie knows it. 2016 should have seen a Bernie-led Dem exit. And so the meme has been corrected and credit to who did that, it wasn't me. Uh, they're actually being dragged toward the Democratic Party. There was further discussion of this. Most people were really not having this. Um, problem is, DSA is not a socialist group. At best, Lasallians, at worst, Sock Dems. They've been incredible for labor rights, but they're not socialist. And by using that label, they blur the lines between socialism and capitalism. Um, some are, some aren't, but uh, they do not help class consciousness. They hinder it. Again, I don't think it's a it's a large organization. I don't think that that is entirely the case. Somebody said, I'm with you, man, but we need something, bro. We can't just keep going on like this. Something's got to change. And there's no giant wave for anti-DeSantis like there was for Trump. So I said, yes, we do need something. Again, what I would say is we really need the U.S. working class to mature politically. And my opinion is that if a couple of years in DSA is what newer activists need in order to see what's what, in other words, they're not ready to join a communist group, which is, I think, describes most people who have grown up in the severely anti-communist U.S., um, if they need a couple of years in DSA to figure out what's what and then move on to something better, I think that's fine. I'd rather them take those couple of years than just stay in a position of confusion for five years. But we shouldn't be holding up DSA as the end point, which is what socialism done left is doing. They're saying like DSA is it. We're here. It's great. It's better than everything else. Um, I think if DSA is the best thing that's going on, your left is in trouble and the U.S. left is in trouble. You know, the labor movement has been in decline for a long time and uh, it does need to change. But even what, uh, you know, the Bernie Democrats are doing to improve the labor movement, and they are, there's things like a more perfect union that highlights labor struggles and things like that. It's could we come up with something better? Yes. Would the anti-communists probably fight it? Also, yes. So this is really kind of hypocritical, like, oh, look at how great we're doing when they're doing their best to shit on, um, you know, they're not communists, they're not socialist, socialism done left. And so it's very disingenuous of them to, um, you know, just hold up DSA. Look, hey, we came out on top. Yeah, you did. Your big tent, a lot of people get involved um, because it's the only thing going on. Uh, although I'm sure that there will be other things um, sprouting up elsewhere. Also, again, ignoring the historical roots of anti-communism in the U.S. Also, U.S. law enforcement uh, persecution of socialist groups and breaking them up and jailing activists, et cetera, et cetera, and infiltrating movements and organizations. I'm sure that happens in DSA as well. 
but it's also really happened to the smaller and more militant groups. So it's just sort of such smug ignorance that Socialism Done Left is displaying there. And it, I mean, it, it got called out in the thread. Anyway, speaking of the labor movement, uh, something slightly more positive here. There is a massive three-day strike going on in the LA school system. There are various videos on it. I don't want to play the video here. Uh, sometimes they're weird about copyright with that. But anyway, Los Angeles school strike, thousands of teachers walk out. Uh, so there's more than 65,000 school support staff and teachers beginning a uh, three-day strike. That was yesterday. So they're in the middle of that right now. Check that out. Uh, speaking of why all of this kind of thing is important. So we covered on the Thin Blue Lies podcast posted over at the Red Army recently um, an episode about stopping Cop City this massive police training complex that they're trying to build in Atlanta and bulldoze a forest to do it. And uh, so an update on that. I've heard <clears throat> from some elected officials, especially, that Cop City is going to be built. It's inevitable. So there's no reason for activists to keep putting up a fight. Let me turn that around. If it were truly inevitable, they would not be bothering to tell you to stop. <laughs> they're trying to convince you that it's inevitable so that you will stop because you're not stopping and you're actually delaying it. That's why they're telling you that. It's a lie. Anyway, let me remind you, the Atlanta Police Foundation said that Cop City would open in 2023. But here we are, it's the end of March, and construction hasn't even started. And uh, Stacy Madukes Hopkins says, oh, they'll all tell you this, just like they tell you nothing can be done about this, that, or a third. We shall see people's resistance when it doesn't go through official channels, especially when we organize on our own and do things our own way in our own class interests, that is when things get stalled. And they really don't like that um, because it's effective. And so, you know, they're telling you, oh, you, you can just stop this whole fight. That's all they want. That's all they want is for you to stop resisting because it actually is getting in their way. All right, before we go back into the chat, one more quick segment here on COVID. So, first of all, starting off with the World Health Organization. This was a shocker. Long COVID can affect several body systems and cause a range of symptoms. These are the most common. Post-COVID-19 condition, common symptoms. So, we did a thing about this um, a couple streams ago because it was, uh, I think it was just a week ago, last Wednesday, Stream 87. It was Long COVID Awareness Day on the 15th. And uh, I got a lot of comments from people after that saying, oh my God, these people's stories sound exactly like what I've been experiencing since I got COVID two or three months ago. Well, yeah, you may have long COVID and you need to get into the fight for long COVID solutions and awareness. And we need to stop spreading COVID because you get long COVID from short COVID. Anyway, here are the common symptoms, cognitive dysfunction, sleep disorders, altered smell and taste, persistent cough, shortness of breath, you can't catch a breath, heart palpitations, that's your heart beating irregularly, skipping beats and double beating, chest pain or tightness, extreme tiredness, muscle pain and spasms, and a worsening of fatigue, it's tiredness, after just minimal exertion. So you just get up and you do a few things, maybe you're folding laundry, maybe you do a load of dishes, and you're just super tired and have to like sit down for a while, whereas you weren't this way six months ago. That's a likely sign of long COVID. So anyway, and you can see the graphic there of the guy sort of sitting in a chair uh, with his you know, head in his hand or, or uh, um, 
you know, just looking uh, wiped. So anyway, is this shockingly an official public health body warning of long COVID? Because you really don't see that much. Um, while we're talking about COVID, I mean, it's nice to see that. We need a lot, lot more of it. We need to go back to taking this thing seriously. At a minimum, mask mandates. Uh, we're not even, it seems like, close to that right now. Anyway, about the vaccine, I thought that this was um, worth mentioning. We've covered this before in regard to myocarditis, heart muscle inflammation. The um, anti-vaxxers are constantly going on about how, oh, there's incidents of um, myocarditis, heart inflammation, after you get the vaccine. Yeah, except you know what? What causes that in some people is the spike protein. You know, the same thing that there's a lot more of in the virus. So if you don't like the vaccine, you should hate the virus, okay? That's actually the whole point of vaccines. It's a small dose of the thing. You know, it's a lesser evil so that you get documented protection against, a, you know, a, a bigger batch of it in, in a live infection. So that's the whole idea of the vaccine. It's not that, oh, we love those contents of the vaccines. Let me just, you know, crack one in half and just drink it up. No. <laughs> you, you get a dose of it and there are a few you know possible risks with it they're very low for most people but there are a few possible risks with taking the vaccine just like there is with any medicine but there are far greater risks of just getting infected with covid um, and the vaccine is trying to protect you against those so you take a smaller risk to prevent a bigger risk hopefully that makes sense anyway this is, um, there was a study before showing that the risk of myocarditis is much lower from the vaccine than it is from COVID, like much lower. Now, we have the same thing. This is actually an old study, but somebody um, found it and dragged it up. These things don't always get publicized the way that they need to. Neurological events reported after COVID-19 vaccines, an analysis of vaccine adverse event reporting system, or VAERS. So there's a lot of problems with VAERS as far as... Um, you know, the quality of reports that get put on there and things like that. So it has to be taken with a certain grain of salt. That said, let's read the abstract. What did they actually find comparing the incidence of, you know, vaccine self-reported adverse events with um, what we know about the, uh, the way that the COVID infections are affecting people. So the objective of the study was to identify the rates of neurological events. So that's impact to the brain and nerves following the administration of mRNA, Pfizer or Moderna, or adenovectus virus, uh, adenovirus vector, uh, Janssen uh, vaccines in the U.S., or Janssen. So the methods. Uh, we used publicly available data from the U.S. Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System collected between January 1st, 2021 and June 14, 2021. All free text symptoms that were reported within 42 days of vaccine administration were manually reviewed and grouped into 36 individual neurological diagnostic categories. So they went through all these complaints and basically typed or grouped them into 36 individual um, categories. So then they uh, compared the post-vaccination neurological event rates and age-matched baseline incidence rates in the U.S. So they took the incidence of neurological events following a vaccination, and then the general baseline incidence rates following COVID. What were the results? Out of 306, well, 307 million COVID vaccine doses administered during the study timeframe, 0.1% of people reported any adverse event, 
any adverse event. And 105,000, or 0.03%, reported neurological adverse events in a median of one day after inoculation. So what do we find here is the conclusion of this paragraph, the rate of neurological events after acute SARS coronavirus 2 infection was up to 617 fold higher than after COVID vaccination. In other words, you are 617 times more likely to have a neurological adverse event after getting infected with COVID than you are from taking the vaccine. So when we say that, yeah, there's a risk of the vaccine, the CDC will tell you that. That's common knowledge. No one's trying to cover it up. But it's a much smaller risk, like 600 times smaller than just getting the virus. Okay? So just wanted to share that with people. We'll be doing a longer COVID update uh, soon. Now, here's another one. And I want to be um, clear about this. So actor Lance Reddick died recently. There's pictures of him there. He's been in a ton of stuff. Probably recognize him from something. Um, so uh, I, anyway, um, he died at 60. I mean, here's a guy who looks like he's in pretty good shape. I mean, he shows up with his shirt off and a lot of stuff, at least outwardly, you know, sort of muscular in good shape. Not a lot of body fat, things like that. Um, died at 60. And they're saying natural causes. My question, was it a post-COVID stroke, clot, or heart attack? And I want to be clear, we don't know that yet. However, let me show you a few things because there's kind of a pattern going on with things like that. So reminder, Coolio died at 59 last September during the BA5 wave of a heart attack after experiencing bad asthma for some period of time. So you get bad asthma, then a heart attack. That sounds like COVID to me. That sounds like the exact kind of organ damage that COVID causes. Similarly, food writer Julie Powell died at 49 last year of cardiac arrest a few weeks after a bad bout of COVID-19. This is how it works now. You get infected a few times, and then one of the infections takes you out from organ damage and clotting just a few months later. Um, in Julie Powell's case, she was tweeting about how sick, she was like, I'm sick as a dog, this is horrible. Then she, quote, recovers from the acute phase, and then like two months later has a massive heart attack and dies at 49. All right, another example, Al Roker, also nearly died recently from blood clots. He had COVID-19, and then he was hospitalized in November for blood clots that he says developed after he recovered from COVID-19. Because remember, COVID is a respiratory illness in that its primary um, mo or avenue of infection is through the respiratory system. You breathe it in, it gets in your lungs, then it gets in your system. But it is not just a respiratory uh, illness in that it directly infects the brainstem, the liver, the kidneys, the heart. It attacks and kills your T cells and your immune system. It, um, in many people, takes up residence in your gut and your intestines and lives there and replicates. So COVID-19 is a whole body disease. It attacks your immune system, attacks your major organs, and in your cardiovascular system, it causes clots. So we've covered a number of stories about COVID infections dramatically increasing the risk of deep vein thrombosis, which is where in one of your deep veins, like in a leg, you get a clot building up and then the clot dislodges and starts going through your circulatory system. 
and it can lodge in somewhere you don't want it to, like up by your heart, and kill you. So um, COVID is a clotting disease as well. It causes massive clotting abnormalities, and that's well documented. So the last thing there, overall, COVID increases heart risks in all populations. And we covered this study before. Quote from the study, the major finding was that people with COVID-19 have a higher risk of all sorts of heart problems at one year. The increased risk of a broad spectrum of heart problems was evident. And the main thing about that study that the researcher said surprised him, he was expecting um, the incidence of heart problems to be higher in certain populations. Like, you know, people with certain, um, you know, conditions or this or that, it was the same risk across all groups. So it does not discriminate. You can be super unhealthy. You can be super fit and healthy. Um, I think we we're looking at something recently where there was a 44-year-old, um, like, exercise instructor, literally exercises for a living, doing aerobic, like, um, you know, bike machines and things like that. Got COVID. A couple months later, had a massive widowmaker heart attack. Um, because this is what COVID does. It's not just a lung disease. It's a clotting disease. It's an immune disrupting disease. It causes brain damage. It causes kidney damage. It causes all kinds of damage throughout your body. It can cause diabetes. It attacks your pancreas. So this is something we have to be um, really concerned about going forward. It's not even just the long COVID in the sense of the cognitive impairment, aka brain fog. That's a problem and I've had it and I know other people suffering from it right now, it's life disrupting. You just literally can't think your head, it just goes empty at random times or constantly. Um, you know, the muscle pain, the problem sleeping, uh, emotional problems, it can cause all kinds of stuff. Long COVID is bad, but also this kind of uh, organ damage that is sustained during the acute phase can then kill you just a few months later. And you don't know whether it's going to get you this time. And it's hitting people in their 40s, in their 50s, and in their 60s before they should be, um, you know, dying. And it's, it's clearly linked to this. So what do we see when people are dying before uh, they should be? Well, COVID-19's enormous death toll, worldwide life expectancy has experienced a steep decline. This is an article from Forbes. They've actually been doing a lot of good um, COVID coverage. You can see there from Our World in Data, life expectancy um, has been steadily climbing with a brief dip around uh, 1960, late 50s, uh, early 60s. Um, this is, uh, and so there was a massive famine in, in China around that time. What do you see? Get up to the top and there is a drop of several years. If you look at the U.S. specifically, we covered this story uh, a little while ago. U.S. life expectancy falls to its lowest level since 1996. Now, women, um, females, tend to live longer than males, so their life expectancy is a few years higher, but all groups dropped, female, uh, male, and, and the average of both. However, within certain demographics, it's uh, even more pronounced. So um, Native Americans had a six-year drop in life expectancy. If this continues, then life expectancy is going to keep dropping. Until what? Life expectancy is 65, 60? Where does it stop? Well, right now, we see no natural end to the spread of COVID-19. None whatsoever. Let's go back to that um, other article that we were looking at. There's a chart in here um, that I'd like to show. Usually I read all the words, not just the pictures, in this case for time's sake. 
we're going to, uh, there we go, monthly excess mortality. So this is from Eurostat. And they say for the EU, the complete data set for 2022 isn't in yet. But what we do know is that excess mortality, that is people dying, mortality is death, um, above the expected amount in most average years, that's excess mortality, continues to be elevated in most of the region of, of the EU. The peaks in excess mortality that coincide with COVID-19 waves are considerably lower than in 2020 and 2021, yet there's persistent elevation in excess fatality figures. In other words, uh, by the way, the numbers that go up the left side there, those are percentages, not fixed quantities. So that's the percentage of extra deaths compared to what you would normally expect. And you can see the second line up, there's a, a dotted line and then a solid line. That's zero. So that's the baseline. It's been steadily above and it continues to be well above. Um, so you can see that like for the end of uh, 2022, again, not all of the data uh, are, were in yet, but it's where you're 20% um, of what, you know, more than what you would expect. And this is continuing. So, at, you know, the responsible thing that adults need to do when there is a problem is not wait for it to resolve on its own, especially when it clearly looks like that's not going to happen. You have to get in there and be proactive and take action. So if we don't end this pandemic right now, what it's looking like is that it is not going to end on its own. So we have to end it. And if we don't do that, that's a choice where we just keep rolling on and on with more sickness, more weakness, and more death from a preventable illness that this society, due to its emphasis on profitability and just sending people back to work and back to school, it's shortening people's lifespans and is getting people killed, you know, closer to 60 than to 75 or 80. And I don't want that to be me. Do you want it to be you? All right, so with all of that done, let us get into the chat and see what has been going on since I have been talking and talking and talking. I've given the chat many, many prompts with all of these uh, different stories we've been doing, so let's see what the uh, 39 people in here um, have to say about it all. All right, I've gone up as far as I can. Right-wing media is solely there to dumb us down. Yep. Yeah, Tucker Carlson is uh, against the bad elites for the good elites. Brilliant. Why did no one think of that before? Uh, as it's shaking out, it seems like solidarity is the litmus test to determine whether someone is socialist or fascist. Fascists can afford to dangle class issues for legitimacy before ultimately pulling the carpet from out from under uh, to scapegoat vulnerable workers. They cannot afford to have a revolutionary solidarity with foreign workers. So yeah, you're talking about proletarian internationalism as far as the solidarity. Um, they cannot afford to have a revolutionary solidarity with foreign workers, LGBTQ+, um, Black Lives Matter movement, indigenous people, because capitalism is inherently minoritarian. Well, and it's nationalistic um, in the sense that they need to keep the workers div divided. Um, you know, capitalists started out when they were overthrowing the feudal order, advertising themselves as freedom fighters. And yeah, they were a sort of revolutionary movement against feudalism. However, they wanted to put the brakes on as soon as they themselves took power. And so once they took power, 
they wanted to stop the revolution from proceeding into a proletarian revolution. Now, in those days, the proletariat was a lot smaller. Capitalism was much less developed. As capitalism develops, it proletarianizes a greater portion of the population. So the proletariat existed then, otherwise there wouldn't be capitalists, because that's how capitalists make money, is uh, extracting surplus value. But um, they still had to safeguard their nascent capitalist social order against a future proletarian revolution. So they kept some of the feudal reaction around, and then this whole freedom fighting business. I mean, they'll still try to sell you it, like libertarians today will tell you that, you know, they're uh, they're for like freedom and liberty, and they're the party of 1776 and whatever. The problem is uh, we're not in 1776 anymore. The class composition of the U.S. is completely different, and of any other advanced society, this is no longer an agrarian society where capitalism is just emerging. Um, we now have a society where the overwhelming majority of people are wage workers or people who otherwise would be wage workers don't own capital, but you know can't work for some reason and something like that. So it's the proletariat that now needs to lead society, but, you know, libertarians will fight that tooth and nail. Um, capitalism is, you know, to the extent that it ever was a freedom-fighting movement, that moment passed a long time ago, and now it is, uh, it's just oppression and exploitation. How could someone look at that clip of Tucker Carlson and think he is literally anything other than a fascist? He's openly on the side of the reactionary bourgeoisie against the, quote, progressive capitalists. This contradiction is not, quote, real, but he wants you to think it is. That is fascism. So, I don't know, because I pointed this out to a number of people in those comments, and they weren't ready to hear it. I'm not sure what it was they weren't ready to hear, or if they were paid trolls. But I can tell you that it is not always as simple as just merely pointing it out to people. Russia is the U.S., but in Russian. Same imperialist goals. I mean, I think that's the point. I don't know if it was on here or somewhere else that somebody articulated. I think it was on here. Uh, somebody articulated that... Um, not all capitalists make it to the stage of being imperialist, but any capitalist power that is successful, that's the destination. You end up at imperialism. Imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. And uh, any capitalist that lasts long enough to develop into that, that is, that is where they end up. And of course, you know, there's sort of, it becomes an international system uh, at a certain point due to the migration of capital and the funding of different things across international lines but yeah russia is less developed as a capitalist power than the u.s it has only been in a stable position of being capitalist for about 20 years again 30 years ago or roughly 30 years ago it was socialist and then it went through about 10 years of chaos and then um you know for the last 20 or so slightly longer years it started to restabilize along capitalist lines under putin and with the partial aid and direction of the U U.S. and Europe. And now they're having a tiff and they're having a conflict because Russia wants a bigger seat at the table, etc. Now, another thing, uh, there's just a recent conference between uh, the heads of Russia and China. There's clips of it online. I was just watching some yesterday. Russia and China are planning to do a lot more business and trade. That's what the whole uh, meeting was about. And... Um, so that's basically Russia's plan is all of the Western capital that pulled out of Russia due to the war, Chinese capital is supposed to come in 
and basically fill those gaps. So we may see, um, you know, as far as Chinese expansion of capital dramatically into Russia in the coming years, which, well, I'll, I'll, uh, what do you think will happen? Let's put it that way. Just read Lenin. He makes this stuff so straightforward. Couldn't agree more. That is why we have put more Lenin texts on the channel than I think anything else. Well, not that I think. That I know than anything else. There's about 100 Lenin texts on the channel out of like 700 total videos. So, yeah. A lot of communists seem to think that the solution, quote unquote, to the war is Russia annexing all of Ukraine. And I, yeah, that's just literally czarist empire thinking. And I agree that this pro-Russian thinking is a problem in the scope that it has spread. Yeah, because people aren't doing revolutionary defeatism. They're siding with one based imperialist over the other imperialist. Or they're denying that it's imperialist. I mean, you can't deny that Russia's capitalist. Uh, but somehow it's, you know, quote, anti-imperialist capitalist. No, I mean, the days of, like, the uh, Communist Party of China's alliance with the nationalists is long gone. That was also done in, you know, pre-World War II days um, when, you know, 99% of the Chinese population was pe peasants um, and, you know, capitalism had never developed there. It's a completely different moment in historical development. When you have a large, able proletariat, you push for social revolution. That's what you do if you are a socialist. End of story. You're far more likely to be so anti-U.S. Yeah, okay, I see where you're going. Like, the thing that that commenter had said to me, who has been supporting the channel for a long time, and I appreciate their um, presence, uh, but they were saying, you know, oh, if you criticize Russia too much, you're going to wind up in the pro-U.S. camp. I agree with this comment, Henshin, that what's more likely to happen, what I'm seeing a lot more of, is, I mean, at least among self-styled, you know, would-be Marxists and communists, is, you know, because it's more radlibs and sort of, quote, anarchists or whatever. They're doing the, I'm so anti-Russia that I'm pro-U.S. Yet among the sort of revisionist Marxists and communists, it's, I'm so anti-U.S., which, fine, you should be anti-U.S. It's, like, the biggest source of, like, imperialist evil in the world. It's a not a good thing. Uh, being so anti that that you wind up uh, becoming pro-Russia. I agree. You're far more likely to do that. That would only make sense if the people in question did not have an understanding of the U.S. as imperialist, like the Radlibs. But Marxists get that. We're not going to mistake the U.S. as an anti-imperialist force. Yeah, I agree. that would be the most absurd thing ever. And to be honest, posting a con I didn't get into a thing with this person, but like to be posting a comment like that here at S4A, you, like, you really think that's where I'm headed? Like, think again. Anyway. Uh, Irish Merlin is absolutely right. <laughs> oh, please, God, don't show me this video again. You're talking about the Mick video. The Mick Wallace video. That's his name, right? Mick Wallace. Irish Merlin. I wrote his name. Yeah, Mick Wallace. There we go. I realized I said Mick. And then I was like, no, somebody's going to think that's a slur. No, this is actual name. All right. Uh, Democratic Party shills. Oh, no, are you talking about that video? The uh, I am politics girl. Democratic Party shills are the cringest people on earth. Also, I just registered Green Party. Everyone else should as well. Again, I'm telling you, um, is the Green Party the final thing that we need in the end for the revolution? 
you know, I probably we're going to see something else emerge, but it's better than standing still. Keep the fight going, make the connections and learn all the lessons that you possibly can. But you got to get out of the Democratic Party and you've also got to stay out of the ditch of non-participation and apathy. Do something, get organized with something. All right, people commenting now on the Democratic Party shill video. Oh no, I have a bad feeling about this. Her eyes are so lifeless. Why? If Democrats were serious about democracy, they would be telling people the truth about the fact that there is no democracy and be citing the Princeton study. Yeah, so anybody listening to this, if you haven't seen it already, look up the Princeton study on democracy. So you will find things, I've shown this many times on, uh, on social media, but um, just type in Princeton study democracy USA and you'll get a BBC article with the headline study US is an oligarchy not a democracy the US is dominated by a rich and powerful elite so concludes a recent study by Princeton University professor uh, and so on uh, talking points memo also Princeton study US no longer an actual democracy so um, what this study showed is that there is no statistical correlation between public opinion and public policy but there is a strong statistical correlation between capitalist opinion i.e political donors people have money to spend out thousands and thousands of dollars uh, on candidates there's a strong um, correlation between their opinion and public policy so basically public policy is bought in the united states it's not elected also if you look at even simpler measure um, the candidate that spends the most money during the election like during the campaign whichever campaign spends the most money wins and I think 95 or better percent of cases in the US House for the Senate it's a little lower it's like 81 or 82 percent but in the overwhelming majority of cases whichever candidate spends the most money wins again that means that seats are not with a hundred percent reliability but with a very high degree of reliability like better than four out of five or nine out of ten sometimes even 19 out of 20 whoever just spends the most money wins that means they're bought that's what that means when you spend money to get a result that means you're buying that thing and again it's not a hundred percent it's a little bit of a gamble but with a high degree of reliability you know uh whoever spends the most money wins so that's the way the U.S. actually works. And yeah, I agree. If they cared about democracy, they would stand up for democracy. Of course, it's a complete sham. It's a complete and utter sham. No one that's not being paid could like Pete. It's the truth. I mean, I, I, uh, I you know, dare anyone to try to refute that. I mean, at this stage, at least. I think I have met, like, uh, I met at one point somebody who was supporting Pete during the primaries. They knew nothing about politics. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, uh, I kept seeing the thumbnail of this politics person show up. It's so much worse than I could have imagined. As for a gulag for subjecting us to this. No, you got to know what's going on out there. You've got to know. But see, the plus side of this is this is these are our enemies look at how bad they are at this i mean if we can't do better than this let's put it this way we will do better than that all right because they're it's so flimsy it's a total sham it's a total sham we will beat them all right 
Sadly, there isn't personal protective equipment against cringe. The late-stage capitalist complaining about late-stage capitalism. Exactly right. Obama was definitely the new face of imperialism, uh, like all the famous celebrities... Sorry, I'm moving my laptop and it's squeaking. Uh, like all the famous celebrities hung around him like moths to a flame. Imagine being an adult and being convinced the U.S. is an actual democracy in the first place. Yep. Um... Workers' rights? Can we ask the railroad workers? Yeah. Yeah. Fuck workers' rights? I want workers' control. I mean, yeah. That would be workers' rights, just writ large. But I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. It, you're saying fuck the limits on workers' rights. Cringe wine mom does political propaganda. This is cursed. I hate this piece of shit. This is a pundit from a script written by Aaron Sorkin. I don't vote for Joe Biden because he is a goofy grandpa. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that was the biggest complaint is like, I just need a president who's like a little less goofy. I might vote for Trump instead. He's definitely less goofy. Are you kidding me? That just was not the conversation happening. <laughs> Joe Biden is an excellent leader. What? He's barely sentient. She forgot rapist. I don't trust people who say bang up job. My thoughts exactly. Uh, the Democrats also do all of that just quote, less, not even really, and yeah, they participate in the Republicans doing it. Oh, did we get a crypto troll in here? I'm glad I missed that. AOC is a fraud. The recent AOC shit was really bad. Uh, AOC morphing into a young Nancy Pelosi. I mean, if you watch early AOC, like, I get why people fell for it. You know, it was energetic. It was, she said a lot of the right words. She really did. But again, you know, the problem with uh, like socialism done left still trying to sell you on this crap and any other sort of rad lib garbage defending the Democratic Party and trying to sell you on it like, oh, look, we're making communists relevant again. No, the breakdown of capitalism is making communists relevant again. Um, that, that, that's what's actually happening there. What you're doing is trying to muddy the waters about it. And, you know, you're trying to still sell us on Bernie and AOC. No, what Bernie and AOC showed, actually, we have an article on the channel. I remember covering this. I think it was late 2021. Let me bring it up. It was AOC basically saying that it was impossible to work in the Democratic Party. So, I mean, even she said it like a year and a half ago. I'm bringing it up now. Come on. Come on, YouTube. You can do it. Come on. Don't wreck my flow. Why is this not working? There we go. Um, I did a lot on AOC. Okay, so the title is AOC colon working with Dems likely futile. S4A colon detach from Dems 100% and move left for Revolution 2030. So yeah, this was an article in like the New Yorker or something like that. And it was from... YouTube saying two years ago, I don't have the exact date. AOC was like said in this interview, like it's impossible to work within the Democratic Party. Nothing's getting done. I'm so frustrated, blah, blah, blah. Well, duh. I, mean, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> it goes something better than duh, but I mean, sometimes it's appropriate. Uh, shudders at the thought of a young Nancy Pelosi. There is an actual picture of a young Nancy Pelosi uh, being photographed with JFK, I think if that... Sort of puts it in perspective chronologically. Uh, 
rule of law, literal fascist buzzword. AOC is going around straight up lying right now because she's denying hosting a military recruiting event. She knows she did, yeah. Let's see, down with shitcoin, down with capitalism. I guess I guess we had a um, guess we had a crypto troll in here. Thank you, mods, for taking care of that. Socialism done wrong. Socialism done reactionary. Socialism done fed. Uh, let's see. I'm starting to think AOC is an op or something more systematic. She's emblematic of the rot at the core of the DSA. Um, she's definitely the part of the DSA that is dragging things to the right. We've covered things from factions within DSA, which are trying to resist all of that Democratic Party attachment, etc. Um, at some point, we will reach the point where the cell divides and, you know, you'll get some part of DSA staying as just an appendage of the Democratic Party. And then you'll get the actually socialist part of DSA moving on to become something else. Um, it would be fairly large. Now, I did cover that um, Reform or Revolution Caucus, and I was looking at some of their readings that they have on their site, because they, they did have a very good article that I read. Unfortunately, a lot of the links to it are Trotskyist. I know that there's a lot of socialist alternative people, which is Trotskyist, and that was Kashama Sawant's um, organization, or is Kashama Sawant's organization. Um, they're Trotskyist. And I noticed they were linking to Socialist Worker and to another Trotskyist site. So Reformer Revolution might be Trotskyist. Um, I, you know, that's not something that we support as Marxist-Leninists. They're still better than Democrats, but, you know, be advised, I guess. Stop resisting the common refrain of the pigs. Absolutely. Anti-vaxxers are losers. Well put. I visited the doctor two, day, two days ago. They somehow gave me the wrong date. I almost got a Botox treatment. I would, uh, yeah, patient safety. That's important. Um, I'm here for a vaccine. Have some Botox. No, thank you. And you're here for having your right arm amputated? No, I'm here for fucking blood test, but thanks. I, that kind of shit happens, by the way. Um, anyway. There's just no awareness for long COVID anywhere. Yeah. I asked the doctor if I could have long COVID. They laughed and said I should take... Oh, my God. Your doctor told you take conspiracy theories too seriously. Go back to your doctor and show him this infographic from the World Health Organization. Ask him if they they take the World Health Organization is taking conspiracy theories too seriously. So uh, the amount of respect you should have for that doctor is zero. Um, you know, and that goes for any doctor that's not masking during an airborne pandemic um, and so on. Yeah, they're called bourgeois specialists. They only care about themselves and the rich people. Yeah, you know, in revolutionary China, they had a thing called red and expert where they tried to combat the problem of the sort of um, petty bourgeois minded professional class by also making them communists. So they were recognized for their expertise, which is important. People want that. But they also um, were educated closely about their um, role within society and and the revolution and the construction of socialism. So it is, it is possible to do that. Speculate on COVID causing celebrity death. 
is like S4A's extremely macabre version of conspiracy theories. I'm just saying that guy looked fit as hell and he died at 60 and we know other people, you know, are dying like super early. Um, some of the time it's clearly linked to a COVID infection and that's documented. It's not in Lance Reddick's case, but that's exactly the kind of thing that you expect to see from post-COVID um, organ failure. So, yeah. I've only uh, ever had to do CPR two times, and both times were on people that threw a clot. So that would be, yeah, um, that's the embolism thing that we're talking about. Not too long after they got out of COVID isolation. So that's exactly it, yeah. Um, it's It has a lot of, you'll look up COVID-19 or SARS coronavirus 2 clotting. You'll get quite an education, definitely. Or just DVT, deep, deep vein thrombosis. So thromboid is a clot, and then embolism is when it dislodges and starts floating through your circula circulatory system. The fact that life expectancy is dropping for the first time in multiple generations for the masses of Americans, and there aren't huge protests over this, is so frustrating. Yeah, again, like I said, Americans not so good at fighting for their rights. we got to really, really up that. So, yeah. I heard the Temple grad student strike is over, and they got some of what they were asking for, but I was curious if you heard anything concrete about this. I have ab heard absolutely nothing about it. I see a link to People's World. I'll take a look at that um, later. I want to keep the stream going today. We're making good time. Um, want to just keep moving through, through the chat here, because I've been, uh, I did a lot of articles. Let's get through the chat first. Is Michael Hudson worth taking seriously? I was thrown off when, after being asked about Chile during Allende, he went on a rant saying U.S. Capitol loved Allende, he wasn't socialist, etc. Uh, they loved him so much like he was killed. Um, I, I'll be honest, I really have not read Michael Hudson. I haven't seen too many people like really touting him as essential reading. So, I mean, I think you can do a lot of reading that doesn't involve Michael Hudson and, and still get get a lot uh, out of it. So, COVID is a class war. Found this article on life expectancy in the UK. There are some interesting notes on life expectancy, also healthy life expectancy in relation to deprivation status. Thank you. I will check that out. Tom Hartman used to cite this study all the time until the Democrats took power. Yeah, Tom Hartman, man, just some dignity, please. Like, that guy is so hard to listen to. He'll do some good stuff against libertarians or whatever, but um, his defenses of the Democratic Party are just awful. Like, they're so sad and desperate sounding. They're so sad and desperate sounding because you know he knows better but he'll still defend them anyway because Republicans. And look, dude, we've been doing this for decade after decade. Things still keep getting worse. Even if you want to say the Democrats are better than Republicans, you know what? I'll even, like, for the sake of argument, just not contest that. But even with that being the case, no matter how many times they get into office, things still keep getting worse. So clearly, even if you want to say they're better than the Republicans, this is like strawberry ice cream is better than chocolate. 
It's your opinion. I can't really argue with it. Um, the bottom line is things still keep getting worse, term after term after term. So even if they're slightly better, they're not doing the things needed to turn anything around, okay? Found a decent banned documentary regarding the Black Power Movement in pre-Thatcher Britain, and it includes the perspectives of Marxists and community organizers. Well, thank you. I'll take a look at that. Breads are so fundamental to the working class throughout history, it used to be punished with the death penalty if you sold bad bread. I've not heard that. The documentary, the one on the Black Power Movement in England, shows the area in Manchester where Engels based his condition of the working class in England and how Caribbean people moved there as a sort of sub-proletariat in the 50s. Interesting. Have I already covered this stuff in France? No, I mean, we, we talked about some of the protests that were going on in France like a couple weeks ago. I know that, so Macron basically rammed through a pension reform using sort of um, some sort of like recently devised emergency measure. And so there were like massive protests in France. The thing, though, I think it's and, you know, it, it's always great to see the French protesting the way that they do. But the fact that they can protest that much and still be dealing with a Macron doing that kind of thing, I think shows that those protests alone are not going to cut it. You need organization as well. Now, I would love to see France having a socialist revolution. It would be fantastic. And also, you know, finally, we'd be... Um, you know, Marx's predictions would be sort of catching up. The, the, in other words, the idea that the uh, advanced capitalist countries like in Western Europe would be the first to go socialist. Finally, we would get a socialist revolution in a, uh, in a you know, Western advanced capitalist country, which is more in line with Marx and Engels' sort of original thoughts on things. Uh, that would be great to see. Believe me, I am so ready for a socialist France or, um, you know, Soviet France. Uh, anybody remember Soviet France? Um, you know, or, or, or any other country for that matter, uh, Portugal, like whatever. Would love to see it. Would love to see it. But yeah, it's clear that the semi-spontaneous demonstrations are, are not going to do it. There has to be organization put into something that effectively takes power. So full support to the French. Keep up your protesting, etc. But uh, you know, the fact that you've been protesting like that and they're still doing this shit anyway, it's not to say you should stop protesting, you shouldn't, but it's clearly got to go to the next level. You know, I think there's um, a lot of people, uh, Caleb Maupin is one who, you know, will speak against protests and things like that. Things like that increase morale and the general sort of mood of the working class to get out there and to tell power to fuck off and to, you know, take back some sense of power in the streets. This is our country. All that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it, it does boost morale and it's good. But again, you need the political organization um, in a well-organized militant proletarian party to actually translate this into real sustained revolutionary control. That's not to say protest is bad or wrong or you shouldn't do it. You should. It can be actually re really sort of good for you and get a lot of um, ideas flowing about things to do. 
but um, also recognize like that's that's not the be all end all. I saw some videos from France that made Black Lives Matter look like child's play. You know, as I've said before, I think there's a poor culture of protest in the U.S. We don't do it enough. Part of that is because of the uh, severity of the police shooting people in the streets and things like that here. But um, still, you know, we just have a poor culture of protest that we need to work on that. Um, you know, people talk about the revolutionary potential of the U.S. working class or whatever. I mean, show me even the, the protesting potential of the, uh, the U.S. working class. I know people are upset and want change and et cetera, but when it comes down to fighting for it, that's what's lacking. People are very afraid, I think, of the government. That's where, you know, where I think a lot of the sort of knee-jerk libertarian, like, I hate the government, I hate the government stuff comes from. Obviously, there's a lot of, uh, that stuff is manipulated and massaged by big capitalists to get deregulation of capital and industry. That That's fair. But I think to the extent that there is an organic sense of that, I think it especially comes from people are very afraid of the U.S. government. I mean, it is a frightening thing. It's extremely violent and inhumane and barbaric. It's really not a pleasant thing to deal with. Um, that said, you know, again, as the political maturity continues in the coming decades, it's something that has to be overcome, just has to be. Now we can, uh, you know, this ties in with the push for police abolition, which is reducing the quantity primarily and also somewhat the quality or type of police actions that are there. We need to uh, demand a scaling back of police at the same time that we ramp up our protests and, and actions in our, uh, in our you know, overall political interests. Let's see. France lacks its vanguard. Should we move there? KKE transplant to France. I don't know. Um, I don't know. The uh, I'm I'm not actually up on all the French uh, Communist parties. I know the PCF, and so on. I'm 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 unaware of any of the French Communist parties being sort of striking international examples of being like at the leading edge of sort of anti-revisionist thought, but. Please uh, send me some links about French communism so I can get up to speed. Macron said, I care more about the common good, quote, than what the protests are, protesters are yelling about and said that he knew best, quote, to get France back in shape. Well, I'm sure glad that they dodged the far right, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. Le Pen is a piece of shit and their party is fascist. But uh, Macron, not that much better. Maupin would probably say that about what's happening in France. Oh, yeah, he supported the fucking trucker convoy. And um, if people remember also the Dutch farmer protests as well. Yeah, they'll support any kind of pro any sort of fake fucking astroturf, petty bourgeois bullshit. Um, but yet when it comes to like protesting and rallies, it's like it's just liberals. It's just liberals. Yeah, COVID increasing the risk of seizures, definitely. I think it was you I was talking to about that because you have them, right? Um, that was when I realized that uh, seizures is one of the neurological uh, potential complications of COVID. Also a huge lack of solidarity, yeah, in the U.S., yeah. Uh, cop culture in the U.S. is also massive. Not everyone can travel to protest. That's true, but I mean, uh, that is true. 
the thing is the people who can't travel to protest a lot of times are in areas where there's just low population density because that is another problem of the U.S. is mass transit is not really a thing. It's not extensive at all. I remember one time um, I was talking, I was in like kind of a, not in a major city, let's put it that way. And I was talking to this guy from uh, Europe who was like over visiting and he needed to get somewhere that was also not a city. And he was like, uh, yeah, are there like trains that go there? And it was just sort of all I could do to just stop from like, crying with laughter <laughs> like a train buddy you're like lucky if you get a train even near like a major metro area in this country um there'll be like one train a day that like rolls through as just like a major commuter train wow um but yeah as far as the people not being able to travel to protest it is true uh you know that said there's a lot of people already in the urban areas who could be turning out and the turnout isn't always there so yeah that cop rally in new york where it's just a sea of pigs it's the third biggest army in the world so americans should definitely go for police abolition prior to revolution yeah i mean build your forces while also calling for police abolition absolutely it's it's important and again go to the red army it's r-e-a-d it's a pun the red army on twitter uh the thin blue lies podcast we did one stop cop city where we talked a lot about police abolition in the back half of it. So uh, I'll put a link. Let me make a note to myself. I'll put a link to that again. Or you can just um, uh, thin, thin blues, thin blue lies three, making a note. Uh, you can just scroll down the S4A community post. I put a link to it there. But yeah, I saw the pictures of that cop rally uh, in New York City all like six months ago that was like widely circulated after some cops got killed. It was disgusting. I mean, it was like, that's what they're going to do for the day is like, just do this massive show of force. All they're trying to do is, is intimidate um, the average people. You know, cops cause crime. They don't solve crime. Hasn't Maupin dropped socialism and gone for uniting proles and industrial capitalists? Yeah, that would be fascism. Um, in the fucking U.S., it makes no sense. Not Marxism in any way. Yeah, hopefully everyone's on the same page at this point. Uh, Maupin hangs out primarily with uh, neo-fascists as, you know, uh, that 2018 conference he showed up. He tries to say that uh, that conference where he's there with Dugan, sitting next to Dugan at the speaker's table with um, two people from Marine Le Pen's party and like random other neo-fascists, that he was there as a, quote, journalist. Bro, you were a speaker and you're sitting there at the table, like nodding along with Dugan. And when it's your turn to talk, you're like, I'm a Duganist. You're not there as a journalist anymore. You're there to just kiss their asses and like try to just uh, soak up all the neo-fascist ideology you possibly can. Just wanted to say thanks for all the work you do on YouTube. I listen a lot. And, and again, if he wants to denounce all that and start over, you know, again, without that much credibility, but fine, you want to start over then denounce it. But he hasn't gone anywhere near a denunciation. So anyway, just wanted to say thanks for all the work you do on YouTube. I listen a lot while uh, at work delivering mail. Your read through of Black Shirts and Reds was so good and I can't stop recommending it now. Okay. Um, excellent. I'm glad that it is helping. Also, I want to mention, as far as we're thanking people, we're caught up with the chat now. Before I go into the features, let's thank the patrons. Uh, we got a couple of actually like kind of large tips in the jar recently. 
um, from Citizen Smith and Genasa Meow. Uh, but thanks to all the patrons for their support. It really makes doing the work that needs to be done here and all the strategizing that needs to be done about the work um, so much easier to do. I'm able to take time away from things without stressing about it so much when the support is there. We don't run ads on this channel. We don't do sponsorships. I want this to be a non-commercial channel that is just viewer supported because you're getting value out of it and you want to see it continue. I try to, as I think these streams show, stay in, in dialogue with uh, the people who are coming here to learn along with us and you know try to display some reasonability as well. In other words, explaining why we say the things that we say so that you can follow along. And if you end up disagreeing, that's fine. We can have that discussion. That's the kind of channel that we're trying to do. Um, you know, and I'm coming from the place that I think is best supported by the evidence. And, you know, again, this, this is all, this is a movement and we're just trying to do what is best in the end for actually advancing the movement so that we get some solutions to the political problems that we're actually facing. This isn't just, you know, armchair history or anything like that. We look at history, but the reason we look at history and theory, which again in Marxism are informed by each other, just it's scientific, you know, you do an experiment based off of a hypothesis and then the results of the experiment, you modify your hypothesis and that's how you build a theory, okay? Anyway, uh, that's we're, we're doing it to solve political problems and Lord knows we're facing enough political problems right now uh, as we're just looking at those fucking democratic shill videos. Um, yeah, we, we, we try to do a decent job. There's a lot of people coming in all the time, new listeners, and uh, I'm just trying to run the channel in a way where we get the maximum good to the viewer with the least amount of headache to me. And, you know, I'm rearranging this and that. Um, and yeah, you know, you'll see new features on the channel from time to time. For example, these live streams, we didn't do them for the first two years. Now we're doing them. And so anyway, I just uh, appreciate all the support and uh, I'm glad that people are getting value out of it. You know, obviously uh, you can't teach stuff like this in the school system. So you gotta come on online to YouTube and Twitch and whatever. I'm just glad people are here for it because um, you know, it's nothing particularly special about me other than the dedication and trying to do it honestly. Um, you're here because you got problems. I get that. I, I'm here because I got problems. Problems we need to fix, they're not going to get fixed on their own. Hence, we need to do the study. We need to figure out what needs to be done and then go do it. All right. So kind of on that note, actually, um, let's get into today's features. We got uh, about an hour and 15 left to make this uh, roughly four hours and we could go a little bit beyond that but I want to talk organizations today and we'll come back to the chat in between these but uh, two organizations we're going to talk about Red Fightback and Politsturm so I think Politsturm we're going to talk about second I did mention them earlier in the stream when I was introducing the channel and all that uh, I have so far sort of reframed from you know steering people towards any particular group um, however, I think at this point, three years in, you know, and this is tentative and it's subject to change, but I think at this point, from what I've seen, if people are looking for more of a Marxist study group organization, 
I'd probably say give Politsterm a try. They have an actual application process. You have to study, you have to sort of submit, um, you know, papers and, and things like that. So, I mean, papers as far as not like, you know, papers, please. I mean, papers as far as you have to do writing about Marxism and demonstrate knowledge and stuff like that. So they seem to be adequately rigorous. And, you know, these are the kind of things that I think that we need to see. And that for me doing this for three years now, it took me about this long to even come to a point where I knew what I thought about you know, this group of people or that group of people, it takes a while to sort of figure out your own stance on things, especially when so many people are in your face trying to get you to do this. Oh, you should do this. You should read the, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to process this in my own way and I got to figure out what I actually think about all this. Well, okay, three years in, I think I'm a little bit closer to that, still figuring it out. But again, I think finally have the foundation to uh you know make a bit more of a recommendation about that um their politsterm's opinion is that we don't have the party we need and that there's sort of more of a pre-party formation uh anyway we'll we'll read that in a minute it's they acknowledge it to still be in the formative stages at this point and uh anyway i just probably agree with what i've seen out of them the most it's also international but speaking of um, international, let's talk about another group that I thought was putting out pretty good literature. They unfortunately uh, split. I mean, the organization was destroyed not that long ago. Uh, and that is Red Fight Back in the UK. I liked a lot of the stuff that I saw out of their organization on their website. And uh, unfortunately, it disintegrated. So this is an article sent in by a patron, and I apologize, I can't remember uh, who sent this in. It was like a week or so ago. But the article is Red, ba- Red Fightback's Final Crisis by Alfie Hancocks, and it's really just from pretty recently. It starts with a quote, The way forward is complete representation for oppressed people and groups within the leadership of the socialist cadre, safe channels of communication over sensitive topics of debate in order to encourage democratic centralism, and putting oppressed people groups first in every instance, unquote. So read the statement of noble intent of Red Fightback, a Marxist-Leninist organization formed five years ago by a handful of people who left the Revolutionary Communist Group, RCG, over its failure to handle a complaint of sexual assault. Comment, by the way, the ISO, a Trotskyist group in the U.S., um, they, uh, I think in 2018 disbanded over for the exact same reason continuing um this but to be clear here red fight back did not split up over that revolutionary communist group a bunch of people left over that okay continuing the split took place in a wider malaise of misogyny and abuse apologia within the british left the socialist worker party's comrade delta scandal being the most notorious case Red Fightback aimed to foster a revolutionary socialist and anti-imperialist movement that took oppression seriously, which included support for internal caucuses, protecting the interests of members oppressed by patriarchy, racism, and ableism. The project has now seemingly come to a sudden end due to a failure to combat oppression within its ranks. So I'm always you know, commenting here. Uh, I'm always telling people you need to get out in the world and get experience with organizations and groups Group dynamics are tricky and challenging, and you need to gain experience with them 
it really is a set of skills that you need to build. So let's read about, you know, what seemed like a promising organization that didn't work out. Let's see what lessons we can get. At the heart of the crisis was a traumatic interpersonal conflict involving several leading personalities with competing injuries of anti-blackness and sexual abuse. This occurred against the background of longer running concerns of institutional anti-blackness within the organization spanning over several years. In response to a statement signed by 10 members of the racially oppressed caucus, indicting the national leadership and announcing its secession from Red Fightback, one of the accused parties who managed the group's tech infrastructure nuked the online communication server and website. You know, all right, let's, uh, let's move on. Um, the Central Committee, which was, which was immersed in existing political tensions, was paralyzed by inaction, and a CC member with access to the group's social media sent out an unauthorized tweet declaring that the, quote, attempt at building a cross-racial coalition in Red Fightback has failed. Seventy-odd active members who had no idea of the issues boiling under the surface were left confused and grieving. Postmortems will inevitably ensue with declarations of failure that will be oversimplified and prognoses that will draw the wrong lessons. What follows here is an early attempt at analyzing the hidden dynamic of a political sect sincerely committed to forging a revolutionary coalition against racial capitalism. It was an organization frequently distinguished by that clash of orthodoxy and iconoclasm, so characteristic of the new communist movement of the 1970s, which generates a creative tension, but also destructive tumult. Most striking, though, was Red Fightback's advancement of an unapologetically queer communism. A majority of the group, including the leadership, identified as TLGBIQ and neurodivergent. Members found in the co-penetration of communist austerity and queer anti-normativity a refuge from a hostile social and political outer world, although in practice the division of labor within the group often failed to transgress patriarchal conventions. So in other words, they had a good credo, although in practice it would often mimic patriarchal conventions. The group adopted what some members saw as an intersectional approach that sought to address the political significance of the movement for black lives, in contrast to a left in Britain that has often deigned to take the struggle against racism seriously beyond tepid calls of black and white unite and fight. So a slogan, but not necessarily the deeper work being built. Red Fightback was not insulated from a national culture carrying the deep imprint of empire, however, and there were numerous manifestations of white chauvinism within the organization. Consciousness raising was necessary, but the moralistic tendencies of a revolutionary sect, particularly of a Maoist inflection, at times encouraged hypersubjectivism, a trend reinforced by essentializing and psychoanalytical theories of anti-blackness. What remains certain, though, is that socialists cannot afford to defer questions of oppression to some point, quote, after the revolution, you hear this a lot, and if overlapping injustices and traumas create particular difficulties in organizing spaces, quote, as identities become more and more fine-grained and disagreements sharper, unquote, it is all the more necessary for anti-capitalist coalitions to grapple with the porous boundaries between the personal and the political an anti-sectarian sect. In 2018, a handful of activists from a mixture of social backgrounds split from the RCG, known for its newspaper, Fight Racism, Fight Imperialism, itself being a splinter group from Tony Cliff's International Socialist Group, later SWP, 
in the 70s and founded a new communist organization which aimed to be feminist, anti-imperialist, anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-ableist, and anti-abusive. This was shortly joined by exiles from the disintegrating Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist, whose leaders had declared war on identity politics and, quote, gender ideology. So this is Harpel Brar uh, and uh, people that Caleb Maupin now like does interviews with uh, things like that. Very reactionary perspective, CPGBML. Then there were those like me who had come in fresh and for whom Red Fightback was the entry point into the subterranean world of Leninist sects. That would be sects, sorry. Well, you get it. In general, recruitment benefited from an influx of students enthused by the socialist revival associated with Corbyn, but who didn't want anything to do with the Labor Party, which, after all, had a century-long record of governing capitalism at home and neo-colonialist domination abroad. My first in-party experience was an early congress at a church in Leeds, attended by 17 misfits who announced the impending crisis of capitalist imperialism and the coming British Revolution. The memory that stands out was the jarring moment when a member of the Central Committee instructed us all to put our phones in a microwave to evade state surveillance. We reluctantly, excuse me, we reluctantly obliged. Lenin's 1920 pamphlet, although I have to say it's not necessarily a terrible idea, uh, just don't, don't turn the microwave on. Lenin's 1920 pamphlet, Left-Wing Communism, described ultra-leftism as an infantile disorder. Infantile in the literal sense of political immaturity. We've been talking about that today. Most of Red Fightback had little, if any, experience in organizing and were very young. Sometimes iron certitude and self-righteousness reflect a poverty of inner knowledge. As the quote goes, the group was informed by various shades of Maoism or anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism. Our politics in the early days were encapsulated by what New Socialist editor Tom Gann has referred to as the national nihilism of rainy fascism island, ideas on the left, entailing an aloof attitude to the British labor tradition, which was viewed as fundamentally bourgeois, their British labor movement. So when we talk about like labor aristocracies and a bourgeoisified uh, proletariat, that's what they're referring to there, a proletariat that has basically been just drowned in bourgeois ideas and values. Okay. Colonialism and imperialism have undoubtedly left their corrupting imprint on metropolitan class formation, but a la the RCG, this was understood in a mechanical way, which wrote off the entirety of the organized working class as a reactionary labor aristocracy. Right. We didn't learn about the India League, the movement for colonial freedom, or the anti-apartheid movement. However weak and compromised, sedimented as it was across the long duration of imperial rise and decline, there is a tradition of labor internationalism in Britain worth critically engaging with. So comment, um, somebody brought up Bad Empanada doing like a super anti-US left uh, Doomer video that is just sort of uh, nihilistic and apathy promoting. Uh, you know, it's like give up US left, there's nothing there. That's fundamentally untrue. Um, and, and this is exactly what they're talking about. While it, it may be true that those are a lot of the tendencies in the broad working class, it's not to say that there's never been anything of value that is worth critically engaging with. The IWW, the Black Panther Party, like there's examples uh, and things still going on today which need to be engaged with critically. And as I've said, maybe need to be improved. The U.S. left needs improvement. 
But that's not to say you just fucking piss it all away. That's utterly sloppy analysis, and it doesn't really help anyone. Uh, there's desperately poor people. There's a homelessness crisis going on in the USA. To say that there can or should be no organizing along those lines, that's just fucking despicable. All right, anyway. So, yeah, there is a left. Um, some of it's very good, though small. Some of it is larger, though less good. But it does need to be engaged with critically. And then, of course, there are some things that are just neo-fascist that do need to be strictly combated. But this is where we apply analysis to tell the difference between these things. Otherwise, why are you even listening to this? You know, just give up then. That's such, such a bad message. All right. Not knowing what to do practically, Red Fightback focused on perfecting its political vision and internal structures. This entailed a wordy party constitution, which someone pointed out, exceeding the length of the fundamental law of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Being guilty of what Trotsky dubbed the substitutionist error, substituting a political sect for a real class vanguard, the group's concerns centered on having the correct line to impart to the masses. Yeah, so I have to say that um, you see a lot of this, especially in Trotskyism. They're like, if we just come up with the, the correct line, it will be this magic key that just, you know, spoken will like break the spell and wake Sleeping Beauty. Uh, that's not the way it works. It, the correct line and the class consciousness that you need uh, to see in the working class, it happens through struggle, a lot of which is sloppy and imperfect with many mistakes made. And trying to set out with the perfect line off the bat is idealist. I mean, honestly, you're, you're just, you're literally, you know, thinking it's going to be this sort of uh, open sesame incantation you're going to speak, which is going to just rouse the masses. That's not the way it is. There's a lot of resistance and inertia that needs to be overcome in the masses. And that's going to happen through, you know, I mean, it's like if you've ever been to a pool or the beach and you've got some, you know, I remember especially like as a kid, you know, trying to get like an older relative to uh, come in like, come in the water with you to play or whatever. And, you know, how hard it can be to sort of get them in the water. In other words, this is something you're trying to coax people into doing something they probably will enjoy and benefit from in the end, but they're resistant to doing it. It's not just a question of the magic words. You know, we would love to think that uh, life operates on this sort of, um, you know, a magic phrase mic drop sort of thing where people are just sort of, uh, you know, verbally compelled into doing whatever. It doesn't really work like that. Anyway, internal struggle over the party line often took the argumentative type, or the argumentative style of Twitter debates. Fucking cancer. As the left wind blog notes, quote, internet communists learn Leninism as a set of, quote, positions on historical and modern events, or at worst, a set of dogmas and truism. Then, quote, new converts to Marxism-Leninism or any other tendency seek an affinity group, almost like a hobby club. Yeah, that, that's true. That's why people are always in search of, quote, takes and why I have been resisting. Here's your take, you know, because people have their little bingo card of takes and then they're just looking for somebody to, like, follow around. This is an ongoing struggle where we try to solve problems, not just it's not just take collecting. You know, that's a very lazy armchair approach to class struggle. To keep track of the growing number of official red fightback lines, a core positions document was created, which included the various countries we deemed socialist. 
For a time, the most pressing question on the lips of every new member was, what's your line on China? Again, we've been talking about that since the first stream, so that'll be very familiar to people uh, familiar with this channel. The plurality of perspectives on socialism with Chinese characteristics was quite effectively resolved by referring to the Black Panther Party's distinction between revolutionary criticism and reactionary criticism, which strengthens the dominant camp of global imperialism. So there's, in other words, revolutionary criticism and then reactionary criticism. The reactionary criticism is bad and strengthens imperialism. All right. The most idiosyncratic political line was the final crisis of capitalism. A leading member set forth a paper which showed that by mapping the falling global rate of profit, it was possible to project a point in the near future when it will hit zero. Legend tells that RCG founder Dr. David Yaffe's velocitometer could calculate the speed of the falling rate of profit to limits of 0 0.00002 feet per second shortly before which capitalism would enter an insoluble crisis. The analysis drew on Henrik Grossman's reassertion of Marx's laws of accumulation. We covered um, that recently. There was like a neo-Grossmanite. We covered talking about exactly this, the falling rate of profit. Interesting work. Um, doesn't mean you don't need to do all the mass work that you need to do, but interesting. Uh, reassertion of Marx's laws of accumulation and critique of theories of underconsumption later associated with Keynes. Talking about Keynesian economics, that, that would be that Keynes. The position was largely accepted by the membership, none of whom had any idea who Grossman was. Charitably, this analysis of a final crisis can be said to underscore the realities of imperialist competition. Alert to the expanding contradictions within the NATO alliance, which many on the left naively view as a homogeneously unified bloc. In other words, they're here emphasizing the contradictions within the NATO alliance which is true. Remember, you know, when we talk about contradictions, there are internal and external contradictions. So, you know, um, divide by two, there's in anything, there's going to be, uh, you know, contradiction within it. There can also be contradiction within that whole thing and with something else. So certainly there will be contradictions between NATO and non-NATO entities. There will also be contradictions within NATO. All right. Uh, our analysis of Brexit highlighted the contradictions between sections of the British capitalist class relatively aligned with Euro-imperialism, and then those sections of the British capitalist class whose priorities lay in strengthening the special relationship. The severity of the climate crisis was also emphasized, although the agitational utility of the catastrophist slogan, socialism or extinction, was questionable. In time, the navel-gazing would lead to criticism. I like that it says nasal-gazing, but um, navel-gazing would lead to criticism of the party's Theoretical Development Committee, TDC. Inspired by the base-building trend associated with the now-defunct Marxist Center in North America, Red Fightback launched into a new focus on mutual aid, which often functioned as red charity work. Regular stalls in working-class communities in Liverpool, Birmingham, Glasgow, and elsewhere enabled members to dip their feet into organizing, boosted the group's public profile, and encouraged a refreshing looking outwards, which is great. I think that emphasis on looking outwards, this is key, because if you're just, um, all of your functions are just party members sitting in a room talking, uh, again, you can turn inward too much and then wind up you know, self-cannibalizing you need to go out in the world and remind yourself of the context in which your party exists, for sure. And what does it actually do when you get out there? Are you actually good at anything? That's very key. 
Um, branches were also involved in local movements, including the anti-gentrification Save Latin Village campaign in North London. There was an attempt to kickstart our own campaign, Bog Off, against the exclusion of trans people from public toilets, which was linked to wider class and anti-racist struggles over rights to health, safety, and dignity. The campaign was mostly limited to stickering and a couple meetings with trade unionists, but it's still a campaign. Members occasionally took part in the Kill the Bill assemblies against the policing, crime, sentencing, and courts bill, and in networks resisting immigration raids. So they're talking about what they actually did. The years following the national lockdowns, COVID, were a time of political maturation for Red Fightback, which was accompanied by the development of a humorous and self-effacing culture towards, quote, the party, including among the leadership. So they weren't taking themselves quite so seriously. Much larger national congresses were of a qualitatively different character, and the accumulation of lines was scrapped. However, the novelty of the group's emphasis on democratic participation and autonomy of branches and caucuses also meant that members often lacked initiative and frequently complained that there wasn't enough centralism or national direction. So again, anarchists would have you think that, you know, centralism is this like sort of evil to just be like barely tolerated or maybe even always fought. The reality is sometimes you just are in an org and sometimes you just want to show up and be like, what are today's marching orders? Because you don't need to sort of, um, you know, spend like three days in consensus about what next to do. Sometimes it's just like, all right, we're all basically on the same page. What's the plan today? Um, so anyway, an exaggerated, yeah, it's just not always the case that like all the time needs to be spent making decisions. That's actually super counterproductive often and very frustrating too. An exaggerated assumption among particularly newer members that the leadership comprised a bureaucratized clique with which they were principally in contradiction was compound. That's, and here you get the sort of Trotskyite, uh, what are they saying? It's like a degenerated workers party that is like 75 people. <laughs> like where the leadership is a bureaucratized clique with which they're principally in contradiction. If you're principally in contradiction with the leadership of your own party, yeah, it's time to find a different party, but anyway, was compounded by a lingering reluctance to air political debates out in the open. Instead, there remained a vicious cycle of intensive criticism, often in the form of bombing the party headquarters and overreaction that was unhealthy and unresolvable, since it expressed frustrations at the pace of socialist struggle, which reflected objective circumstances beyond the control of a political sect. Amen. That gets some applause for me, because I've been in groups before, too, where everyone is just ready to fucking snap at, like, the drop of a hat, but it's due to things that have nothing to do with the group. It has to do with political crises going on in the larger society. It has to do with uh, some law that got passed on the statewide level that people are frustrated about. It has to do with, you know, Donald Trump got elected, whatever. Like, whatever is putting people in a bad mood. And then uh, you sort of, like, then um, project that into the group, which is such a counterproductive thing, but it really does happen a lot. So if you've never been in a group like this and you've never seen that happen, you may be taking this on faith right now. That's why I tell people, really get whatever experience you can. It's probably going to help you in the end. With the caveat, don't get burned out and avoid the worst of situations because there can be some catastrophic things. And that's, again, I've gotten criticism for it, but I'd rather see newbies go towards the big tents 
the DSA, the Greens, then get involved with some tiny microsect where there can be real potential for like traumatizing personal damage. So and that's the kind of thing I don't want on my hands. And I've talked with people recently where there was like a case of, um, I forget the, the organization, but there was like allegations of sex slavery going on. It was like a very small group. Yeah, that's the last thing I want to be steering people towards, uh, especially, especially newcomers who are just like, you know, uh, just became class conscious like six months ago. Anyway, continuing. The group's ephemeral prime was further witness to a pedagogical zeal with a series of educational programs requiring a huge amount of time and energy from a score of dedicated members. This created a vibrantly eclectic and anti-didactic intellectual culture. Uh, so um, being didactic means like instructive or teaching. So, uh, you know, like an autodidact is somebody who taught themselves. Anyway, although with a definite anti-Trotskyist slant to the curriculum, nothing wrong with that, to the Marxist-Leninist classics and the activist study, Arling Octobista, Iraq, which we just put up on the channel, of the Filipino revolutionary movement were added, uh, Ambalavaner Slanandan, not familiar with that, Cedric Robinson, Asada Shakur, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and Sylvia Federici. Topics covered included dialectics and the labor theory of value, anti-psychiatry, social reproduction theory, carceral abolitionism, Marx's ecology, and the social model of disability. Particular importance was placed on theorizing contemporary imperialism and the new processes of economic unequal exchange, which accompanied capitalist, quote, globalization, for which we drew heavily on Samir Amin, Walter Rodney, World Systems Theory, and the Monthly Review School. There was a notable neglect of the British New Left intellectuals, save for Stuart Hall's writings on law and order. Like the best of the 1968-era revolutionary groups, our Leninism did not preclude a healthy respect for libertarian impulses, which soon led to a rethinking of sectarian vanguardism. I'm getting a red flag here, but let's see. More observant comrades connected the dots and realized that the Trotskyist sects were riddled with similar issues of over-centralism and abuses of power as the established Maoist and, quote, Stalinist ones. It was recognized that the militarized formulation of democratic centralism, promoted by the Comintern under pressures of siege communism, was inappropriate to existing British conditions. Well, says you, but okay, let's continue. And our reconfiguration drew on a range of influences from American post-Trotskyist Hal Draper's socialism from below to the interpreter of Fauquismo, Régis Debray. Unfamiliar with that, but it's certainly a well-read group, I'll say that. Remarkably for a group which originated in a split from one of the most insular sects on the British left, we pushed toward an anti-sectarian position, a stance which is customarily more honored in the breach than in the observance. In hindsight, my penning of a 10,000-word polemic against the reformist and nationalist errors of the Communist Party of Britain in late 2020 was probably not the most productive form of non-sectarian engagement. It fueled online feuding with the Young Communist League, who had enjoyed a minor membership revival thanks to disillusioned Corbynistas drawn to the militancy evinced in its publicity stunts. But we were increasingly open to cooperation with other groups and individuals who, despite marked ideological differences, shared our emphasis on fighting oppression and an intolerance of abuse. 
This included various anarchists and Trotskyists in RS-21, who similarly to Red Fightback had undertaken a self-reflexive critique of sectarian vanguardism after the crisis in the SWP, Socialist Workers' Party. A common Red Fightback watchword was that since Britain had never enjoyed the actuality of revolution, no revolutionary theory could be upheld by us as scientific doctrine. Dogmatic Marxist-Leninist types and fetishists of 20th century communist aesthetic continued to join in numbers and adopt leadership positions, but the general direction, encouraged by the now more experienced cadre, was toward a, quote, open Leninism, with a stress on combating oppression and Eurocentrism. This political openness was, I think, encouraged by the group's cultivation of a distinctly queer communism. Queer communism. Communists have long noted how in times of social crisis, the, quote, traditional bonds of sexual relations, like all other fetters, are thrown into question, and Red Fightback emerged during a period of ongoing cultural struggle within the left, revolving around the moral panic attending the breakdown of gender norms. The background to this conflict can be partially traced to new labor, which combined pronouncements on gay equality with appeals to the traditionalist values of family, faith, and flag. But over the last five years, social reaction in Britain has been doggedly trained on the transgender community. Trans antagonistic, quote, gender critical or GC viewpoints promoted within the Labour Party soon seeped into the trade union movement, reflected in the Communist Party affiliated Morning Star's decision to print a Der Sturmer S cartoon depicting a trans woman as a frothing crocodile in a pool of newts. Okay. Red Fightback, in stark contrast, provided a safe party for queer militants alienated and excluded from other left-wing spaces, and throughout its short existence, most of the leadership were trans, non-binary, and neurodivergent communists. There was also later a caucus for past and present sex workers, which organized with the United Voices of the World Union. The British communist movement has historically sought to project a respectable, puritanical image, but as the late Glyn Salton Cox pointed out in his Queer Communism in the Ministry of Love, this was always in tension with an anti-normative impulse, quote, tearing away the decent drapery of capital to parade its freakish constitution of human inferiority, and driven by a solemn madness to endlessly diagnose, correct, and abjectly celebrate their own deviations, communists must surely rank among the foremost perverts of modernity, unquote. Well, the struggle over socialist identity has persisted today in attempts to revive a trad left. Most risibly, the CPGBML, that would be the Moppinite people, has adopted the proletarian drag for which the militant tendency was once infamous, instructing its student members to wear Peaky Blinders flat caps God, I've seen some of that shit even in the U.S. And get Tommy Robinson haircuts. Brooklyn-based communist uh, Cade Doyle Griffiths has observed how the traditionalist revival on the left reflects a kind of neoliberal approach to socialist identity. Quote, an injunction to the personally just be normal. The irony of normie socialists in the CPGBML, the YCL, or the Trotskyist IMT is that they are, quote, to a person themselves weirdos, intellectuals, hipsters, rigidly sectarian fail-sons in their own minds, deeply embroiled in left subculture, weird Twitter and the like, and really all manner of not adequately normal, unquote. Again, applause. You know, I went through that briefly um, for a period in the 2000s, 
and then realized, no, this is bullshit. And you can see, again, we just mentioned the Caleb Maupin video uh, at the neo-fascist conference in 2018, where when it's his turn to speak, he's denouncing, like, and people would wear ripped jeans and this and that, like, all of this sort of, like, millennial bashing and whatever. You know, it's like the further right-wing somebody goes, the more fucking shit they're trying to hide from themselves. And that's exactly it. It's like the irony of these people desperately trying to perform some idea of like what a normal person is look just be the person you are okay it looks fucking ridiculous when you get out there and you start being like the fashion police for like what is adequately proletarian it really screams of your inadequacy and your insecurity much more than anything else Red Fightback ditched the trad left aesthetic and championed an openness advocated by Griffiths, quote, as much as we weren't going to trick the ruling class into giving us what we want and need, we won't trick workers into socialism or into trusting socialists. So it's not going to be by trick that that happens. In other words, in my experience, being out in any sense breeds trust among comrades and militants. So when people feel like you're hiding something from them, they're less likely to trust you. If even if they somewhat disagree with what you are or it makes them uncomfortable or whatever, you know, uh, just um, ruffles their own insecurities, um, they're at least going to go, well, this person is comfortable with who they are and they're being honest with me. And that comes across. And that's the point here. Uh, whereas if somebody, you know, has some giant stick up their ass and they're clearly like putting on a suit to like appear fucking ultra normal that comes off as like <laughs> how long before this person snaps and just starts like fucking you know like uh takes like hostages in a mcdonald's all right uh red fight back members constructed a queer and specifically trans identity that was defined in and through a communist political identity as one member put it quote to red fight back i am a comrade to the gender troubled feminist i am a curioso this was also reflected during a roundtable discussion on Marxism and transgender liberation in June 2020. Quote, for me, my gender was always linked to my politics. I started off organizing around people who were largely trans and non-binary, and they were deeply influential in both facilitating me to come to terms with a lot of difficulties that I had in my own experience of gender, as well as what it means to do so in a supportive and loving environment where that's the norm. When I came to Red Fight back in those super early days, where everything was so stripped back, it was obvious where the party's priorities lay. It was that's the same sense of communal support, but paired with revolutionary liberation and better politics. And like the fact that the party started off with so many trans and non-binary... Non We're getting to that part of the stream, folks, where simple words become uh, severe challenges. With so many trans and non-binary people, it's such a reassurance. It's still something we hear reassures people that we really mean what we say on this issue. I only realized I was trans, specifically non-binary, when I joined Red Fightback. Even two years ago, I wasn't a Marxist-Leninist, so I've done a big 180 on pretty much my entire worldview. Congratulations. People need to, you know, update their ideology as they politically mature and gain class consciousness. That's great. 
Before I came to these realizations, I was aware of how patriarchal society is obsessed with policing the boundaries of womanhood, which I always found dehumanizing. But I didn't really know what that meant before I understood dialectical materialism. It's a philosophy of revolutionizing both our external world and ourselves. Unquote. Significantly, it was not just TLGBIQ members who were included in the party community. As Griffith suggests, queers have a lot to offer everyone about coming out and being authentically your weird, and I would add unique self, loving not just who you love, but the ideas you love, the commitments you love that might not map to that bourgeois ideal and your dreams for yourself and society. For young cis-male contrarians who suffered an early political detour through the new atheist movement, an injection of queer radical culture could be manna from heaven. Yeah, like, hey, what if we just let all this go? Wouldn't we all be happier? Yes, definitely. Red Fightback pioneered a transgender Marxism before Pluto Press released its excellent collection by the same name, edited by Jules Joanne Gleason and L. O'Rourke. The party advanced a revolutionary approach to transforming the self and society, inspired by Leslie Feinberg and Mark Ashton. A short book we produced in early 2020, Marxism and Transgender Liberation, Confronting Transphobia in the British Left, achieved a circulation which transcended the obscurity of the group, thanks in large part to the wicked cover art designed by two members. Its content, which I contributed the bulk of, was mostly limited to demolition work, critiquing transphobic attitudes within existing left tendencies, laborite, communist, and Trotskyist, as well as the bioessentialist hangovers in Engels, nonetheless groundbreaking origin of the family, private property, and the state. Being influenced by the proletarian feminism then in vogue within the American neo-Maoist scene, the book took a dismissive approach to queer theory, and the party was initially reluctant to claim the term queer, which some members deemed non-scientific. However, the release of the group attracted a significant number of TLGBIQ communists alienated from mainstream queer spaces, who drove the group's politics in less stale directions. This included a radical critique of pride, with its neoliberal, individual-focused, medicalizing, and reformist approach. The framing of acceptance and inclusion, which are codes for political neutralization and assimilation, into the existing power structure as liberation for LGBTIQ people. Quote, there's something specific about building a space where trans people can engage with themselves, but specifically trans people that have been alienated by the mainstream trans spaces, that have carved a space out comfortably within capitalist hegemony. So let's read that again. There's something specific about building a space where trans people can engage with themselves, but specifically trans people who have been alienated by the mainstream trans spaces that have carved a space out comfortably within capitalist hegemony. So there's a certain kind of space which has found a way to exist comfortably within that capitalist hegemony. But maybe there's something unsettling or uncomfortable about that. So, yeah. Um, a lot of trans people, particularly working class trans people, find those spaces difficult. The fact that it's those people we're bringing into Red Fight Back is an even bigger endorsement, unquote. Trans struggle was analyzed through an anti-imperialist lens, tracing the ascendancy of the heteronormative gender binary to capitalist modernity's universalization through colonialism. While Orthodox Leninists in Britain cling to sex essentialism wrapped in vulgar materialist rhetoric, 
Red Fightback looked towards attempts at the revolutionizing of gender relations within extant socialist projects in Cuba, Venezuela, and the National Democratic Front of the Philippines. The party also emphasized how the particularly virulent turf phenomenon in Britain of the trans-exclusionary radical feminists, transphobes, but transphobes who specifically are all about protecting traditional women and all this kind of stuff. All right. Uh, that in Britain aka Turf Island, is deeply rooted in imperialist standards of sexual conformity and domestic respectability and the legacy of assimilationist white feminism. In the period of decolonization, gender deviants were, quote, walking evidence of moral turpitude and the loss of manly virtue. The transphobic moral panic is thus not unrelated to the populist politics of empire nostalgia, which boiled to the surface in 2016 specifically British Empire nostalgia. We were sympathetic to the analysis of Sisters Uncut during the, during the Kill the Bill movement, which linked gendered violence to the crisis-written British state's convergent attacks on trade unions and racialized minorities. It emboldens, I would just comment, like it emboldens all of it. You know, there's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. talking about when um, his campaign uh, for black civil rights in the U.S., was forming more alliances with labor unions. And he was making the point that, you know, the anti-black bigot and anti-Hispanic bigot, etc., is also probably also a union buster. And like all these things, it emboldens really the same fucking reactionary assholes. In marked contrast to reactionary arguments linking gender nonconformity to liberal self-absorption. Thank you. That is very well put. You know, um... Yeah, it's like, it's always, uh, and you hear people like Paul Cockshot, you know, making similar arguments, all, all these different faces of anti-LGBTQ sentiment that it's just, oh, it's just this, uh, yeah, liberal self-absorption. Oh, it's fucking who people are, okay? You know, maybe, if anything, you know, conforming to bourgeois standards of gender identity seems to, that seems to me much more um, reactionary than, uh I mean, what whatever happened to actually the, the freedom to... Um, anyway, it just it boggles the mind. Continuing, the reality is that in Britain and elsewhere, trans people have long been a backbone of popular organizing. So that is in contrast, the reactionary arguments of like, oh, gender nonconformists or, you know, just uh, liberals or whatever. I've gotten this in the comments at S4A. Actually, they're probably out in, you know, disproportionate numbers out there in popular organizing. From housing rights and trade and trade unionism to resisting police harassment and sexual violence, many you know, and keep in mind this also, for the um, you know I mean I feel like I have um, associated with many nonconformist people, you know for myself I've shaken out as I mean I'm somewhat gender nonconforming but basically basically cis and straight like I'm not going to try to really claim anything else, but um, you know I came to that like that's where I eventually settled back out again at um but like I'm comfortable with that and knowing who I am after uh you know questioning giving giving myself the space to um consider the assumptions with which I have been socialized and so on and understand you know people who haven't gone through a process like that but are just sort of members of uh, the cisgendered and, you know, heterosexual majorities that is also strongly encouraged, let's say at the minimum, by um, the ruling class, 
people who uh, are are not in in those identities uh, or of those identities have gone through a process of uh, examining their relationship with themselves that probably you haven't. And um, there needs to be more respect for that is, is the point that I'm trying to make here, is um, really getting to know yourself in a way that can open up a lot of um, uh, doubts and insecurities, and then coming through the other side as having a grounded sense of who you are. Um, that's something to be respected, not shunned. And it could be that you're trying to shun it and cast aspersions on it because it's a process that maybe, you know, frightens you and, and you don't know where you would uh, end up uh, coming out on the on the other side of that. So, yeah, you know, self-exploration. Obviously, we're interested in um, liberation from class exploitation in the end. But on, on a personal level, just your own personal relationship with yourself, which you have regardless of, you know, uh, class society could end tomorrow. You're still going to have a relationship with yourself and whether you have the integrity to be honest with yourself about who you are. You know, that's an ongoing thing, too. And uh, people who've done that personal work ought to be respected. My point here, LGBTQ plus people probably have gone through a lot more, you know, t uh, exploration and uncomfortable um, examination of that than, you know, cisgendered hetero people are, are ever, ever required to even think about. So anyway, moving on. Many trans communists in Red Fightback were involved in trade union organizing, reflecting the changing character of the organized working class. While a large number of members were students, the precarity already wrought by neoliberalism was magnified by social marginalization. The division of labor within the party did not achieve the desired rupture with patriarchal norms, however. Cis men were encouraged to do their share of minuting meetings, with varying degrees of success, but the social reproductive labor in Red Fightback, including tech maintenance, fell overwhelmingly on TLGBIQ members. It was noted that women and trans comrades did the bulk of organizational and bureaucratic work, all of which was uncompensated, while others stood back and focused on their own personal interests. Queer care was also unable to negate the combined pressures of party work and external life and the taxing rigors of criticism and self-criticism, which all resulted in perpetual burnout of active members, particularly welfare officers. At worst, the traumas produced by a violent society were re-inflicted on each other within the party. And a further problem was that while the party was queer, it was also mostly white. White chauvinism. Red Fightback was always anti-racist, but it was never unified on what that entailed. In the Leninist tradition, the prevailing tendency has been to treat racial ideology, support for imperialism, and socialist allegiance to the nation-state as a necessarily singular phenomenon, often labeling this cluster of ideas as chauvinism. Consequently, there's often been a lack of attention paid specifically to empire, colonialism, and whiteness. From the start, most party members rejected a view of racism within the labor movement as simply a question of false consciousness, which neglects the material components of the compensatory wages of whiteness, theorized by W.E.B. Du Bois. Anti-racism nonetheless remained a theoretical weakness within the party, and there was a lack of engagement with black radicalism, pan-Africanism, or the neo-abolitionist politics, which gained momentum with the transnational movement for black lives. These shortcomings came to a head in 2020 when some members were discussing the Black Hammer Cult, a fringe American organization that gained notoriety for burning copy, copies of the Diary of Anne Frank, 
when it was pointed out by a black comrade that there was a racist history of exceptionalizing black anti-Semitism and downplaying anti-Semitism's organic roots in white Christian European culture, the white members reacted defensively, with one of them shutting down the conversation. In response to criticism, several founding white members left the party. The psychological injury inflicted on the fragile white ego no doubt played a role, but the terminally online nature of interactions and needless intensity of line struggle at the time also contributed to the lack of a constructive resolution. Over the following year, the Theoretical Development Committee was tasked with developing a line on anti-blackness. Two comrades, one black and one white, introduced the philosophy of Afro-pessimism developed by Frank B. Wilderson III, which posits the world as structured around non-black solidarity. Quote, blacks do not function as political subjects. Instead, our flesh and energies are instrumentalized for post-colonial, immigrant, LGBT, and workers' agendas, unquote. Parentheses, the white member advocated the Afro-pessimist position was the person who later responded to accusations of anti-black misconduct with a slash and burn of the party's tech infrastructure. Talk about fragile. Critics of Afro-pessimism have highlighted its idealist, psychoanalytical, and ontological premises, which obscure the co-constitutive history of colonialism, slavery, and capitalism, and are thus at odds with the socialist coalition politics to which Red Fightback aspired. By the way, if you're interested in coalition politics, just search on coalition on the channel. Well, actually, that might not do it due to the left coalition hashtag. <clears throat> but um, search on coalition and Bernice, B-E-R-N-I-C-E. We have a um, nice audio book about coalition politics there. Um, continuing, its utility lay in forcing us to confront the specificity of anti-black oppression and slavery, slavery's afterlives long neglected by Marxists, as well as the psychological impairments that structured interactions with the one black person on the TDC. The committee's engagement with the line on anti-blackness left much to be desired, resulting in a criticism of several white members, a couple of whom were supposed to have helped write the Afro-pessimism line, but had not, and who self-criticized but later left the organization or were kicked out. My own behavior was uncomradely and chauvinist. I sought to defeat an incorrect political line rather than engage in a dialogue motivated by curiosity and mutual respect, with the result that I destroyed a friendship and relationship of trust. While a lengthy self-criticism ensued, I shortly after again displayed white chauvinism and using triggering language when discussing the anti-Asian violence of the National Front, clumsily trying to make a point about the history of coalitional political blackness in Britain. Rather than being expelled, I agreed to a months-long rectification process, and soon afterwards the TDC dissolved. These issues were concealed from the rest of the party, who were given the half-truth that the committee disbanded in tandem with the group's reorientation towards concrete activities. In a post-imperial national culture suffused with whiteness, consciousness raising was necessary, but challenges were involved in negotiating the balance between the individual and the structural. In his book, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else, radical philosopher Olufemi Otaiwo attacks a deference politics, which focuses on the distribution of privilege within the room, such as classrooms, boardrooms, political parties, rather than at the root political issues that explain why everything is so fucked up. This debate around identity and social structure is one which predates even the new left. 
Similar arguments to Taiwo's were made by the American communist Harry Haywood in his autobiography, Black Bolshevik, during a discussion of the rightward drifting CPUSA in 1949-53. Haywood criticized how mass work against racism was sidelined by CPUSA leadership in favor of a moral crusade, which, quote, assumed that the chauvinist policies could be eliminated by wiping out wrong ideas and attitudes of the party rank and file, unquote. He decried how, quote, white chauvinism came to be considered as a sort of phenomenon, a thing in itself, separate from the fight for black rights and proletarian revolution, unquote. This subjectivist approach was later revived in an intensified form within the anti-revisionist New Communist Movement during a notorious campaign against white chauvinism, which, quote, consisted of lengthy criticism sessions dissecting individuals' attitudes and psychology, unquote. The critique of deference politics has shades of the wait-for-the-revolution line, which male socialists have often responded to the feminist, uh, with which male socialists have often responded to the feminist challenge. So commenting, for people who aren't familiar with that, this is the idea that, well, class is the primary contradiction, and uh, therefore we just need to solve that. All this inequality can, you know... Uh, it, Inequality of special oppression, racism, sexism, etc., that can all be handled after the revolution. So just wait for the revolution, we'll fix it then. That's not a good line. Haywood voiced his frustrations with the view, quote, which contended that the party could not move forward until all vestiges of white chauvinism were driven from the ranks. And by the way, the um, Rainbow Coalition with the Black Panther Party and the Young Patriots Organization and the Young Lords, they took the same approach. Uh, unlike that shit Jimmy Dore is trying to sell people and that also revolutionary blackout is trying to sell people um, that's just look up the YPO and they have an article on their um, old website or like the, the website about their history which explains racism was a demon that had to be driven out and slain that was their approach it wasn't just you know anyway this is uh, used by opportunists today to say oh just work with MAGA and racist libertarian militias no no that's that's really not what actual revolutionaries said and don't listen to people trying to tell you that it is what they said anyway where were we um, down at the bottom somewhere there we go um, he nonetheless saw a need for criticism and self-criticism whose purpose is to strengthen the party to consolidate the cadres behind the correct line and practice through exposing errors and rectifying them in practice. Within Red Fightback, there were attempts at a transformative approach to anti-racism linked to constructive political action. A distressing incident on one of the party stalls uh, at which a comrade received anti-black abuse from a member of the public and white comrades failed to intervene was, for instance, used as an educative moment. Nonetheless, there was at times an inquisitional atmosphere and an element of performative confessionalism. A black member of the racially oppressed caucus who viewed the approach as overly individualist was accused of perpetuating whiteness. Red Fightback's final crisis revolved around an interpersonal conflict among several leading members, all of whom were queer and who had been on both the TDC and the Central Committee, involving competing accusations of anti-black behavior and sexual assault. Competing is in quotes there. Often in the party, there was a preference for attempting to privately resolve disputes, both personal and political, which resulted in a lack of transparency. 
This was despite the fact that there was an independent welfare forum to formally handle the large number of internal complaints, though due to capacity issues, it became practically non-functional. When the anti-blackness charges were presented to the leadership in the summer of 2022, an informal agreement was reached with the aggrieved party, whereby all but one member of the CC stepped down prior to the 2022 Congress. None of the reasons behind this were known to the wider membership, including myself. Rather than resolving the issue, the conflict festered. The collapse of the party in January 2023 was immediately triggered by the new CC's expulsion of the black member after the latter's rejection of a conciliation process when a complaint of sexual assault was issued against them. In part, the expulsion reflected the group's emphasis on protecting survivors of sexual assault. A number of prominent members, including several branch organizing secretaries, had been booted for sexual misconduct. However, the ROC secretary felt that the caucus had been improperly excluded from the deliberations and that the, quote, utilization of the privacy of a personal relationship, unquote, i.e. the request of the survivor of sexual assault for anonymity, was used to shut out a systemic investigation into racism. There were no formal procedures requiring any caucus's approval for disciplinary action against its members, and there were no collective discussions about this at the 2022 Congress, even in the guise of processes about welfare, caucus organizing, or broader questions of anti-blackness. The party's ability to respond to the ROC statement concluding that, quote, Red Fight Back is a white interest group, was prevented by the rapid loss of communication and existing political tensions within and around the Central Committee. Ultimately, the critique of racism became entangled in a narrow, factional-driven conflict, when some members sought to connect the anti-blackness accusations to a dispute over the direction of the party. With the majority of the membership unaware of the events that had unfolded, claims began to circulate that the old guard were planning to conduct a purge of Marxist-Leninists, and even more outlandishly, to liquidate the group into an existing pro-trans Trotskyist outfit, RS-21, who would surely welcome an incursion of people they'd presumably regard as Stalinists. That was sarcastic. Uh, that they would surely welcome them. The rumors were given credence by the fact that the former party general secretary criticized in the ROC statement had previously been lambasted for authoring the draft of the party strategy to be critiqued and debated in the lead up to the 2022 Congress, which had transgressed academic conventions and plagiarized aspects from some left libertarian text. Ooh. As the party disintegrated, the conflict devolved into mudslinging as a group of white MLs began piling on their own accusations of abuse against the member who managed the comm server, which boiled down to the fact that she had been abrasive with them in online interactions. A member who pushed back against this narrative for trivializing the term abuse was accused of being a, quote, fed. Yeah, this is called group breakdown. In the process, the struggle against racism was derailed, giving credence to Haywood's reflections that an essentializing approach to racism had encouraged, quote, an atmosphere which was conducive to the development of a particularly paternalistic and patronizing form of white chauvinism, unquote, and which left black comrades as the, quote, defenders of black people against white chauvinists. Just a few more screens on this one. Taiwo's critique of deference emphasizes the corrosive effects of trauma within progressive political struggles, which he suggests can lead to, quote, misrepresenting the stakes of conflict, often by overstating harm, unquote. Here he draws on Sarah Shulman's controversial book, Conflict is Not Abuse, Overstating Harm, 
community responsibility, and the duty of repair, which abolitionist feminists have criticized for its total disinterest in interrogating the broader relationship between shame, abuse, and the structural inequalities that govern our society. It may be the case that neoliberalism has encouraged an individualized approach to trauma and promoted punitive or self-managed solutions. As so often happens, however, this has become a toxically polarized debate within the left. Well said. While the violences of society cannot be wholly expunged from progressive spaces, we do need a prefigurative anti-racist politics, which reflects the liberatory social relations we seek to achieve as a precondition of Taiwo's salutary call to, quote, build the kinds of rooms in which we can sit together. The left has too often been hamstrung by an enervating desire for solidarity to be easy. Well said. No one said this would be easy. Unfortunately, there are no shortcuts to an effective socialist coalition, and it seems doubtful that the solutions to the fracturing of class struggle lie in the cottage industry of ortho-Marxist screeds against identity politics and standpoint epistemology. Epistemology, there we go. All right. Marxist proponents of a strategic universalism have a tendency to wind up nostalgically replaying lost political opportunities, symbolized by the Haitian Revolution and the 1960s U.S. Black Liberation Movement. In the British context, mythologized accounts of solidarity centered on heroic episodes such as the Grunwick Strike or the Battle of Lewisham, which typically erase the long-duration history of white workers, quote, actively choosing to identify with whiteness or not blackness, underlining how historically one-way calls for unity or black and white unite and fight have been. So commenting, we see this with the sort of left-right unity thing in the U.S., which of course has racial dimensions as well. They're not always as overt, but they're there. And um, who's making the calls for the left-right unity? And in the most insistent voice and least likely to yield any fucking ground in that coming together, in that convergence. Of course, it's the right wing. So again, you know, this, the black and white unite and fight is, you know, if this is just a shouted order from white chauvinists toward black workers, how's that going to, how's that going to go over? Right. So while Leninist groups in England, uh, in uh, Britain, have historically helped kickstart mass anti-racist movements, they've often held a paternalistic attitude toward independent black and Asian struggle, combined with an internal intolerance of autonomous self-organization, such as caucuses, as ostensibly in contradiction with democratic centralism. Leninism sans guarantees. Despite the best efforts of the British New Left and Eurocommunist intellectuals to sublate the reform versus revolution dichotomy, Sublation, of course, being a Hegelian dialectical term of uh, basically abolishing while keeping elements of or transforming. The old debate, uh, transforming while uh, rising above as well, taking to a higher level. Um, anyway, the old debate has refused to die. Democratic socialism will prevail as the dominant anti-capitalist tendency in Britain for the foreseeable future. But Leninism remains an unspent political force. Its world historic contributions to anti-imperialism and its robust skepticism of the optimistic view that state power can simply be divided up and peppered with working class personnel ensures its enduring vitality. 
Quixotic ultra-leftism notwithstanding, we do need obstinate revolutionaries who resist the moderating pull exerted on socialists in the Labour Party's orbit. Revolutionaries can play an important role in non-revolutionary contexts. Although the organized far-left has always been relatively tiny in Britain, the history shows that small but committed Leninist grouplets can punch above their weight and catalyze mass political movements. Examples include the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign, the Anti-Nazi League, and the non-stop picket of the South African Embassy. However, these movements took place in a context of wider social ferment and a conjuncture in which student radicalism linked up with industrial militancy that threatened the corporatist TUC labor leadership. What seeds of extra-parliamentary activism developed post-2008 in the movements against austerity, Corbynism transplanted into uh, familiar electoral, missing a comma or something here, uh, in the movements against austerity, Corbynism transplanted into familiar electoral channels, and while recent years have witnessed significant strike actions, the strength of organized labor has nowhere near recovered to pre-1980s levels. In the aftermath of Corbynism's defeat, all the left can do is pick up the difficult task of developing anti-systemic forces organizationally. It's a very well-written, I think, insightful article. The neoliberal counter-revolution of the 1980s and 90s and the post-2008 left's resultant lack of continuity with the new left era. So, in other words, there was the new left era, 60s and 70s, then the neoliberal counter-revolution of the 80s and 90s. And so what they're saying is that was disruptive to the point where the post-2008 left, when there was the global financial meltdown, and people started talking about capitalism by name again. It didn't have continuity with the earlier strong period of the new left. So there, there was like, you know, the left went uh, very slack in the 80s and 90s. And so starting it up after 2008, we're almost starting from scratch or just reading books about what happened in the 60s and 70s. That direct continuity is harder to find. All right. The, uh, so that means that inevitably mistakes had to be made again. Yes. The revolutionary sects that have survived from the 70s are typically ones that insulated themselves from the anti-authoritarian rebellions of that period, and in which young militants continue to become trapped in fossilized political institutions. I suppose we should be thankful that in Red Fightback many lessons were learned quickly. The nature of the party's anticlimactic implosion wasn't inevitable, but the speed of the collapse represented the political tensions that could not be contained in the existing organizational form. That's key. For those, so in other words, there were political tensions there. A lot of leftists came together, were basically on the same page. However, there were tensions, uh, and the organization was not able to withstand, uh, bear the stress of those tensions, so it snapped and the organization broke up. Rather than being able to take the... Um, warp and weft of the you know various tensions that were put on it and come through it to the other side <clears throat> that didn't happen for those committed to revitalizing a revolutionary trend the question remains of how to constructively relate to the communist inheritance the strength of the anti-revisionist framework lies in its recognition of the symbolic power of an unbroken revolutionary tradition with truly global contours and the need to build upon that tradition 
an older comrade from the British Maoist movement of the 1970s and 80s reflects, quote, as individuals, we had entered into this experiment thoroughly imbued with ideas from class and imperialist society. And it was only through struggle over line that we were able to take our political line into new territory, which went beyond the old debates, unquote. This was true of Red Fightback, which took its ideas in genuinely interesting directions, though the intellectual eclecticism translated into a lack of strategic clarity. The adverse side of anti-revisionism, however, is the idealism expressed in its desired restoration of a, quote, untainted Marxism-Leninism, a proclivity that is similarly innate to Trotskyism, and a destructive obsession with ideological purity. Yeah, and I'll just comment, for me, how about we just don't reintroduce capitalism? Now, I know that's simplistic, and there's, you know, systemic reasons why it got it crept back in, blah, 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 but... Um, Let's at least start our anti-revisionism by rejecting some of the most egregious errors rather than continuing to uh, celebrate them. Okay. Uh, and that's not to disagree with this author. Um, Old hostilities within the revolutionary left have deep territory, but there are major issues that need to be dealt with collectively. Doctrinarism, abuses of centralism, and the traditionalist prejudices of a patriarchal and imperialist society, these problems within left-wing spaces do not neatly map onto sectarian demarcations. So in other words, they're not uh, just contained within particular, you know, sectarian interests within the far left. Some ideological issues will be irreconcilable. For instance, questions of campism and the nature of emergent challenges to the U.S.-led, quote, unipolar global order. There should be an honest assessment of both the failures and, quote, the kernels of the communist futures that manifested in the processes of the historical socialist project. And of the latter's fraught but intimate relationship with the epochal struggles against colonialism and racial apartheid. There are important debates to be had. However, there can and should be points of practical unity as a jumping off point for dialogue. Easy to say in theory, of course, but entrenched issues of overt chauvinism and abuse uh, cover up, oh, abuse cover up within the old sects mean that mistrust, insecurity, and paranoia will continue to mar intra left interactions until a fundamental shakeup occurs. Revolutionaries also need to find more productive ways of critically engaging with the left forces who wield the most institutional power. In this regard, we are still maligned by the historic split between communists and socialists that occurred a century ago. This would be the collapse of the Second International. World communism emerged from an unavoidable antagonism driven by the Second Socialist International's opportunism on questions relating to the state and imperialism, issues fudged by recent attempts to rehabilitate the, quote, centrist Marxism of Kautsky. We see some of that in, like, the, uh, I believe it's the Marxist Unity Caucus within DSA, is, like, trying to resurrect Kautsky. Bizarre. Uh, let's pretend Lenin never happened. What the fuck are you talking about? Nonetheless, the mythologized split in socialism has become an unthinking dogma among most Leninists, nourishing the epidemic of microsects. Not exactly sure what they mean there, but there's a link. Rather than seeking to purify the left movement prematurely, revolutionaries need to struggle for their principled positions within the broader socialist milieu. This means not just a reflexive labeling of reformists as bourgeois agents, I agree, many of these people are just not very mature in their political thinking, especially in the U.S., where we're grown up 
so, I mean, we're, we're raised so sheltered from any kind of understanding of history. The average person just probably is coming to what they think is a good faith, but extraordinarily uninformed um, conclusion. Anyway, uh, where were we? But a concrete, a concrete critique of the political culture of democratic socialism in Britain, from Hardy to Ben to Corbyn. I think that that's a good point. So doing a concrete critique of democratic socialism. I know Marxist Paul has a video on this, and yeah, that's that's a, a good type of effort. Uh, its subordination to laborism, a hegemonic ideology of social reform within the capitalist framework, and its brand of moral internationalism wrapped in liberal humanitarianism, and the paternalism of the democratic commonwealth ideal. To resume its status as an agent of change, the collective left needs its own organization independent of labor, Amen. But at present, the revolutionary camp is far too weak and divided vis-a-vis -vis the reformists to exercise a formative influence on such a project. So yeah, you got to build up the strength um, and, and heal the division. So last page, it is difficult to underestimate the challenges facing the still embryonic post-2008 left, operating in the long shadow of defeats suffered in a bygone era. You know, there's a lot expressed in there. Um, I mean, just the rise of neoliberalism in the eight, like late 70s, 80s, 90s, extraordinary defeats suffered. Then in the 2000s with, you know, Bush and Blair, the Iraq War, everything. Um, I mean, these were such massive setbacks for left discourse. Then finally emerging post-2008 and like trying to pick up the pieces from like 40 years prior. It's difficult. Um, or can I do math? 30 years prior. There we go. Awesome. So after decades of neoliberal reaction, socialists' energies are expended in rearguard defenses of reforms, which represent the working class struggle's historical achievement of accumulated social compromises within the bounds of an imperialist nation state. This is a bit overwritten. However, they're talking about trying to defend the remnants of the social welfare state, nationalized health care, things like that, which they came after after 2008 austerity we got to tighten the belt shared sacrifice and that means cuts 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 defund privatize deregulate that's the neoliberal slogan and they will take advantage of every opportunity to do more of it so what they're saying is after decades of neoliberal reaction socialist energies are expended in rearguard defenses of reforms which represent that that legacy of the concessions that we got this bleak situation is unavoidable, but tough pragmatism needs to be wedded with the projection of an anti-systemic alternative, a promise of a better world worth fighting for. And this requires fleshing out the kinds of politics towards which Red Fightback at its best aspired, a socialism that is both universal and particular, economic and cultural, personal and political. The struggle continues. So that's the article. All right, so what's going on in the chat here? I had a conversation with a coworker about his getting a traffic ticket. I told him the pigs can legally lie to you. Frazier versus Cup, and they looked at me like I was crazy. It is kind of amazing how, how naive a lot of people are. We got to change that. You know, you can, those uh, know your rights, don't talk to police videos, all that kind of stuff. Like, all that is helpful. All right. I'm embarrassed to say I used to give money to Jimmy Dore. 
think we're going to get more for our money from S4A. I can, um, yeah, I mean, whew, Jimmy, what can, I don't even know. I'm a moneyless person. I hear that. You know, life without money, it's a, it's a difficult thing. A lot of people who've never quite hit bottom may not really realize it, but there's things you can do without money. But uh, it's very challenging. You gotta really um, be constantly on the lookout for what can be done for free, and yeah. Uh, let's see. Maoist orgs seem to be the best about not replicating capitalist systems of oppression without their group. Uh, like in India, the Maoists are way better on caste than MLs, for example. Okay. RCG, Revo Revolutionary Communist Group. Wow. This is the same shit. It's everywhere, every fucking time. I was in an org which fell for some of the exact same reasons, which split from an org with similar issues. And I've heard the same damn story from others in new defunct orgs. This is why I have not really bothered endorsing any orgs. To be honest, I just tell people, go out there and meet your local left. Network. Ask people what's good. Because I can't tell you. I don't know. I probably don't live in your city or county or state or whatever. So, but they're going to know. So, you know, go out and talk to them. The black and brown codes were left to the reproduction of the party, i.e. day-to-day running of Red Fight Back. People need to sharpen their minds and be able to form their own opinions and takes while also taking other socialist experience and thoughts into account. I do think we're in kind of a formative period right now. And that's, you know, study groups and clubs can help and hope, hopefully this channel and others like it can help to advance people's ideas and, you know, and things like that. Um, we're, we're not really at the stage where we have a powerful party, though, clearly. But we are working toward that. Gentrification is literally displacement of poor people. Yep. Watch the YouTube channel, What is Politics? I think the person is anarchist. He explains Marxism like a five-year-old and was saying how Marx and Russian communists despised the peasants in contrast to the Narodniks. Narodniks were kind of reactionary populists. We've covered this a lot. Um, I have two videos on the channel, What Did Lenin Think of Populism or Populists? Part one and part two. And, uh, I mean, Lenin, you know, it's the, the legacy we reject. Um, it's not about uh, despising the peasants. It's saying that they're not the future of industrial society. There's a big difference between despising them and just recognizing that peasants don't become, I mean, they basically, it's petty, petty bourgeois, um, you know, very low-level production. And... Um, it's not until they become proletarians, which is a very traumatic experience for uh, for the peasantry, uh, which they see as sort of the end of the world because the the way the whole way that they live changes. It's not until they become proletarianized by the capitalist order in society that they become the future, because proletarians are the future uh, of capitalism. That is to say, after capitalism ends. Socialism takes over, which is run by the proletariat that capitalism created. The proletariat exists prior to capitalism, but in very small numbers. It is capitalism that proletarianizes, you know, the middle and and other uh, working classes 
Um, and then finally, you know, capitalism proletarianizes all but the 0.01%. And then it's up to the proletarians to take over, set up socialism, and proletarianize that final piece of the bourgeoisie that won't self-proletarianize. Anyway. Yeah, the Narodniks, Lenin had a lot to say. They were kind of like, you know, make Russian agrarianism great again. They thought that capitalism was like a temp... They had a completely fucked up idea of historical development. They um, thought that, uh, you know, basically they just needed to go back to agrarianism. Everything would be good. They just need to get this capitalism out of the way. So very, very sharp contrast to Marxism. I went to anti-Britain... Uh, I went to an anti-Britain first rally and there was a CPGB ML guy in a fedora. You've got Lalberts with fedoras over there too. What, did he have a sword? Are you allowed to have that kind of thing? <laughs> Even socialist organizations will need to be anti-racist in orientation in order to be of any use to the world revolution. Racism will haunt us unless we're able to admit our implicit white supremacist biases. Yeah, and the reason why the, like the material basis of why capitalism socialize, like trains us to, teaches us to be racist in the first place. Like that's really key. Solidarity with the specially oppressed in society is necessary for a strong proletarian movement. Again, you know, I think as the story of this organization shows, easier said than done. And these are difficult things for an organization to take on in practice. I'm of the belief that any formerly racist people shouldn't be allowed in a socialist government. Maybe after re-education they could do something, but not anything of significance or high level in the party. Willing to accept if my opinion is wrong. Agreement, especially those who are active in things like reactionary groups, etc. It, it's not a, yeah, it's not a terrible idea. I think that rehabilitation from that takes a very, very long time and a lot, a lot of work. And most people don't do it. Some do, but it's really a small minority. Uh, it's a good question. Health revolt about um, forgiveness in a revolution, sort of like a reconciliation afterwards. Um, does anyone write about that? As far as like the, uh, you know, um, what do you do with capitalists once we dispossess them of their land and capital? Do we uh, allow them to make amends to the proletariat? Um, you know, I'm just at the moment not coming up with good sort of illustrative examples but bring that up at some point in the future maybe we'll be able to uh, address it then all right so that was that let us now we're going to really push it and go through and do our final article which is going to be now speaking of like i said um up to this point, I really haven't, you know, endorsed any groups. And again, this isn't really so much an endorsement as far as I've been looking at these things for three years. And in addition to get to know your local left and find out what's actually going on around you, if you're looking for something Marxist, you might give Politsturm a try. I'm, I'm not really heard any bad things about them so far. I like a lot of the materials they're putting out. So it's something that you may want to consider. What I'd like to do is uh, read their about statement because I think it's pretty good and I mostly agree with it and I'd like to hear what you think. Um, so about us, this is from Paul Sturm. 
And again, there, as the previous screen showed, there's uh, people from the U.S., Russia, Armenia, Ukraine. So, comrades, Politsturm has existed for a long time. So it became necessary for us to establish a clear and specific program which can show our views on many problems of the modern communist movement. General points. Politsturm is an independent communist information resource which covers events from the Marxist-Leninist point of view. We have decided to keep our, exist our distance from the existing, quote, communist parties and organizations because we consider none of them to be the vanguard of the working class and represent its interests to the full extent. I mean, I basically feel the same. I think that there are some groups doing pretty good work and other groups I just don't know enough about to say one way or the other. But, okay, so far we're in agreement. Based on this, we believe that our current tasks are, one, development of Marxist ideas. We need to adapt the ideas of Marxism to contemporary realities, so basically applying Marxist analysis to contemporary situations. Okay, I agree. I mean, the point of studying Marxism is not to grow the biggest brain, it's to solve the problems that are in front of us. So yeah. Two, popularization of the Marxist-Leninist ideas among workers. Communists' main objective is to awaken working people to class consciousness. I agree, that's why I'm doing broad-based agitation and education. Three, analysis of the experience of the socialist countries, solving controversial historical problems of the communist movement, dispelling anti-Soviet myths, which we are just absolutely up to our ears in in the U.S. The Soviet Union became a pioneer in the creation and consolidation of the proletarian state. It is necessary to analyze all mistakes and failures that occurred along the way and led to the defeat of socialism. At the same time, we need to dispel anti-Soviet and anti-communist myths spread by opponents of Marxism-Leninism. I agree. For development of Politsturm to the level of a major international resource connecting communists from different countries. Global capital has united in the fight against the working class. The oligarchs who pit one nation against another are actual shareholders of the same transnational corporations. So you see, it's nationalism for thee but not for me. The capitalists are international and they have international solidarity, although they'll have their differences and occasionally uh, will fight a war over it. But they want to keep us as divided as possible. Communists' work cannot be restricted to a single state or country. The global unity of capitalists must be opposed by international workers' solidarity. I agree that totally needs to be done. Five, Marxists' training. Our principles. One, our theoretical platform is Marxism-Leninism. We do not support any specific biases, trends, and directions. Agree? You know, so this is what... It, the way that I put this in, in S4A is that we've strived for Marxist unity. Um, you know, we tried left unity early on. It didn't work. Marxist unity. Uh, and that I lean Marxist-Leninist. So as I describe it now, anti-revisionist Marxist-Leninist. Uh, so I agree. We do not support any specific biases, trends, and directions. Two, the only modern class capable of changing the world is still the proletariat. That is the class of employees who are deprived of the means of production, don't own the means of production, don't own their workplaces, sell their labor power, and produce surplus value, right? Three, Marxists' aim is the transition to communism. It is a society where there is no exploitation of man by man and where conditions for all-around human development are created. Yes, <clears throat> the transition shall be implemented by the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat and the conversion of means of production to workers' ownership. 
4. We struggle against all types of reformism as a tactic corresponding to the interests of the bourgeoisie. So in other words, reformism as such is not just the use of reforms. Revolutionaries can call for reforms here and there, which we use as propaganda in the struggle for revolution. Reformism per se limits the struggle to reforms without revolution. So just to clarify that, Lenin writes about that. Participation in bourgeois parliamentary work, that is the capitalist state, is possible only for outreach and under favorable historical conditions and without detriment to communist core activities. So it can't take away from our core activities. It has to only occur under particular favorable conditions and it's only for outreach. Can't argue with that. Five, democratic centralism is the basic principle of a communist organization, formation, and functioning. It is a combination of democratic mechanisms, such as voting on all important issues, appointment of the governing bodies by grassroots election, their accountability and possible recall at any time, with comprehensive centralization through the subordination of a minority within a majority, compulsory execution of collective decisions, and iron discipline. In other words, majority rules, and you stick to that. This is the traditional way that communist groups have functioned. So, sick. Now, we just read in the last article of, you know, experimenting sort of beyond that and whatever. We'll see how this goes. Six, internationalism is the solidarity and unity of the working class of all countries in the struggle against global capital. Our objectives in this direction are the exposure of and struggle against all forms of chauvinism, bourgeois patriotism and nationalism, as well as bourgeois cosmopolitanism. I must confess, cosmopolitanism is uh, something that's been a bit vague for me, so I'll leave a question mark there. Um, contemporary capitalism, one. General description of contemporary capitalism. Now capitalism is at the highest monopolistic stage of its development, which is called imperialism. It has grown to the world market and enormous international corporations to the fusion of all countries' economies into hegemony over the globe. Throughout its history, capitalism has been accompanied by exploitation and impoverishment, unemployment and homelessness, economic crises and wars, which are an integral part of this mode of production. Can't have it without them. Or sorry, can't have... Yeah, that's exact. Okay. The transition of capitalism to the highest stage of its development, imperialism, signified the triumph of all reactionary elements that capital possessed. The modern world as an extension and deepening of this phase is the eclipse of bourgeois society. Endless imperial wars, bloody coups, more and more frequent severe crises, the majority of the world's population living in poverty, hunger, deadly diseases, environmental degradation, increased exploitation and unemployment are what the current dominance of capital can be characterized by. It's what you can expect from the system from now on. Capitalism must be replaced by communism, which is a progressive and optimal social formation capable of solving the existing contradictions. Public ownership and scientific planning of the economy are the basis of communism. In the recent past, humanity already tried to switch over to communism, but early efforts suffered a temporary reverse. While it has changed, the capitalist system still exists. 2. The welfare state. The main change of the capitalist system since the early 1950s, or maybe a little earlier, they're saying the world system, it happened in some countries sooner, um, was a patch-up policy and the improvement of mass living standards at home carried out under the pressure of the workers' revolutionary demands. The bourgeois welfare state improved the quality of life of the workers, 
primarily in the Western developed capitalist countries, by extracting excess profits from the colonies. It lulled the proletarian class consciousness and expanded the segment of the so-called labor aristocracy. Ultimately, some improvement of people's lives became an instrument for the restraint of revolutionary activities, i.e. the struggle against the workers. Capitalists, using these you know, minor improvements and concessions, were able to preserve the rule of capital, significantly increase their profits, and extend their influence. With the collapse of the socialist bloc, around 1990, and the demoralization of the world communist and labor movement, the bourgeoisie has begun the attack on the workers' rights and on workers' rights and the curtailment of the social state. Three, the structure of international capitalism. The bourgeoisie of the major imperialist countries, the leaders in finance and modern technology, have not only tied all nations using economic, political, and military measures, but also defined the place and part of every nation, country and continent in the international division of labor, and consequently, the relevant global relationships of dependency and subordination. Thus, global capitalism is a particular system with the following structural units. So here, now they, they do a breakdown, but what they're saying is that the bourgeoisie of the major imperialist countries and all these financial leaders have basically set up the global economy. <coughs> so everything has its particular place, which is set by them, and relationships of dependency and subordination, you know, the global system of leashes and fetters that imperialism puts uh, on countries around the world. So let's break it down. 3.1, the capitalist center. The center of global capitalism includes the states which oppress the peoples of dependent and semi-dependent countries, put elite circles of semi-dependent and dependent countries in a subordinate position. Using financial, material, and technical base, military and political supremacy, using global institutions like the World Trade Organization, IMF, EU, NATO, etc., these states in the capitalist center compel nations to their will, and temporarily smoothing away the internal contradictions of the capitalist system, they strive to prevent even any tiny opportunity to eliminate their monopoly. And they are vicious. The countries of the capitalist center are the United States of America and key European states like the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Switzerland, etc. A good example of imperialist policy pursued by the capitalist center is the military entrances to Iraq, Libya, Syria, Ukraine, and other countries cloaked by peacekeeping motives. The U.S. corporations influence the state policy and they try to retain monopoly by controlling the prices of energy resources which dependent and semi-dependent countries specialize in. Various measures from dumping and other economic sanctions to direct military intervention are assumed. 3.2 Dependent Capitalist Countries this, this category is composed of the least developed countries in all respects. These countries are deprived of any autonomy and are subordinated to the principal capitalist countries. Dependent countries constitute the majority. Aforementioned Syria, there we can see the struggle for the control over Syrian oil, springs and pipelines between the central countries and the semi-dependent Russian Federation. Ukraine, dismembered because of its power resources by the US and EU on the one hand, and Russian Federation on the other hand. As I've said, there's a tug of war over Ukraine since you know 1991, um, part of it leaning more towards Europe, part of it leaning more towards Russia, whatever's closer. 
Kazakhstan, enslaved by Chinese capital, as well as Congo, Nigeria, Angola, Haiti, Afghanistan, Estonia, Greece, Armenia, Chile, Ecuador, Paraguay, etc. Foreign capital almost entirely rules over these states, and the countries themselves are markets for selling goods and providing labor power, means of production and raw materials. 3.3. Comparatively dependent capitalist countries. These are countries which have not fallen into total dependence on the capitalist center. These countries make up the intermediate joint between the central capitalist powers and dependent states. Such states are in a dilemma. They have all the features of an imperialist state and prove themselves as imperialist powers in their region and specific industry. At the same time, such states are dependent on the capitalist center in certain, such as financial and technological, fields. As a rule, the governing bourgeoisie of semi-dependent countries cannot change their status. So many of these countries are rapidly falling into the category of dependent due to the deep-rooted division of labor, predominance of single industry economies, so like just doing oil, for example, technical backwardness and financial dependence. For example, in view of its technical backwardness, Russia has to attract big foreign partners even in the basic sectors of its economy. However, Russian corporations make desperate attempts to defend their position, trying to fix the optimal prices of carbohydrates, or like cereal grains, things like that, staples like that. The active involvement of Russia into the Syrian conflict clearly shows it. Its main aim is to prevent the laying of pipelines to the EU, which would change the energy map. Besides, Russian investments abroad in 2018 reached a peak figure since 2014, amounting to 38.6 billion euros. However, there is an objective tendency for Russia to become a completely dependent state because of the absence of domestic engineering developments, galloping deindustrialization, and scientific and technical brain drain. The um, Russian bourgeoisie isn't developing the way that the USSR used to, for example. So, you know, they're sort of coasting off of what the USSR was, not necessarily replacing it with new stuff anyway, uh, or adequately anyway. Um, this tendency to turn into a totally dependent country shows itself in the sales of natural resources in the eastern part of Russia to Chinese corporations. And as we were just uh, mentioning the meeting between Putin and Xi yesterday, uh, Russia basically saying all the places that Western capital pulled out of in Russia, China is set to move into. So it looks like China is going to be taking over more and more of Russia. Anyway, um, so where were we? On the contrary, the monopolistic Chinese bourgeoisie is looking forward to taking the place of the central global power in the future. The tempestuous development of Chinese state monopoly capitalism and the rapid accumulation of capital necessitate the Chinese bourgeoisie to seize more and more new markets. The growing appetite of Chinese capital cannot be satisfied with a small number of subordinate countries. It must be placed in the center for the best gratification of its interests. So you see, you know, they're not in the capitalist center right now, but that's, as we said before, not all capitalist countries are fully imperialist, but any of the successful ones, that's, that's the destination. That's where, you know, anyway. Technological and financial dependencies are also real problems for Chinese capital, which cannot control all the industries of world production, much less subdue the existing financial and credit system, which was created by the capitalist center. Playing the role of the world factory, China is interested in the constant increase of exported manufactured goods to Europe and the U.S., which are China's main markets and sources of income. At the same time, the natural rise of labor costs in the country and the growth of a proletarian resistance force <coughs> excuse me, 
the growth of a proletarian resistance forced Chinese monopolies and the government of the red populists from the CPC to expand their imperialist influence not only geographically, but also from the perspective of their role in the global labor division. Partial transfer of the least profitable facilities to the poorest countries, their credit enslavement, intensive borrowing and development of technology, as well as attempts to create the largest banking system in the world to replace the existing one, suggest far-reaching plans of Chinese imperialism. The embodiment of these plans and the plans of the other imperialists to change their place in the world system of capitalism provokes the growth of contradictions between the imperialist countries, new interest conflicts over monopolistic redivision of the world, increasing exploitation of workers, endless wars, or another global war and other social upheavals, again, as these interests are trying to reposition themselves. The working class and left movement. So what place do we have in all this? By the way, and speaking of the China thing, um, I want to do a segment in an upcoming stream about the, the chip war. The U.S. is trying to thwart China from developing its computer chips and uh, listening to some interesting stuff about that and collecting articles anyway. The working class and left movement. The automation of production, realized mainly in the advanced capitalist countries, is ousting people from certain industries. This process, combined with the transfer of real production to the least developed countries, affects the structure of the working class primarily in the central capitalist countries. The number of industrial workers is declining, while the number of knowledge and service workers is increasing. In the former socialist countries, the contraction of the industrial proletariat is caused primarily by deindustrialization. Such remember, you know, um, industrialization was such a uh, it was so so stressed in those uh, socialist countries, so prioritized. Um, and again, not so much bourgeoisie trying to coast off of that without spending, uh, you know, spending as little money as possible. Anyway. Uh, such alterations have an extremely negative impact on the entire labor movement. Bourgeois ideologists keep speaking about the eclipse of Marxism and the appearance of new classes. Socialist movements, socialist being in quotes, and parties willingly collaborate with capital, pointing out false or minor problems and watering down all the contradictions. Some opportunist movements do not identify the working class as the revolutionary class, and therefore they deny the dictatorship of the proletariat. We are convinced that the proletariat alone remains the driving force of history. No other class will be able to overturn the basis of the capitalist production and replace it with communism. However, a proletarian is not just a person in overalls standing in a machine or clasping a sledgehammer. He or she is an employee who takes part in the creation of surplus value. That's kind of the main thing. There is a segment of bourgeoisified workers or labor aristocracy among proletarians. They are so-called elite employees top managers, leading engineers, developers, producers, and so on. High wages and the privileged status of the labor aristocracy correspond with neither their humble contribution to the common creation of surplus value, nor their labor costs. What these higher wages and privileged status are is a bribe given by the bourgeoisie, which shares its super profits and deliberately overpays a certain number of employees, uh, allowing them to own some capital. This is the way the bourgeoisie turns some workers into co-exploiters, or as we've said before, they get buy-in on the capitalist project. Officials and deputies, military, police, and employees of other security agencies are the bureaucracy. Doctors and teachers of municipal state institutions are the employees. They do not belong to the class of proletarians.
The ones who produce goods or provide a service with their own tools also cannot be classified as proletarians, individual entrepreneurs, and small staff firms. Farmers who sell their <coughs> excuse me, farmers who sell their own products on the counters and so on. They are the petty bourgeoisie. The communists' main aim is to awaken the proletarian class consciousness, unite t- workers all over the world, and fight their common enemy, which is capital to struggle against imperialism, expose revisionism and opportunism inside the communist movement, and struggle against social chauvinism. This work under the modern capitalist system has some peculiarities. In the central capitalist countries, first of all, we should focus on the struggle against Philistine illusions about the social welfare state, and unmask the rapacious plans of, quote, home imperialists. In relatively dependent countries, we need to confront both the imperialist policy of the home government and aggressive policies of the central capitalist countries. In the most dependent countries, the struggle against the expansion of the imperialist powers and against degradation of anti-imperialist resistance into parochial bourgeois nationalism comes to the fore. The Collapse of Socialism Notwithstanding the bourgeois lies, workers all over the globe have an example of a better life. In 1917, Russia started the Socialist Revolution, and other peoples continued it. Due to their tenacity in labor, the socialism of mere dreams turned into reality. The actual revolution and socialism differed from what had been written about them by the Marxist classics. The revolutions took place in backward countries, not in developed ones. The revolution in Europe was defeated. The world revolution expanded very slowly, moving from undeveloped countries to advanced ones, and the socialist system appeared to have much more holdovers. As a result, the world revolution failed, the socialist bloc fell, and there were counter-revolutions monstrous in scale and cruelty. These facts do not prove the falsity of the Marxist theory or the impossibility of socialism, but show the consequences of the new specific historical situation that the working class faces. As well as the first workers' demands and protests, the first dictatorship of the proletariat, the first world revolution, and the first socialist states should take their rightful place in the history of revolutionary struggle from which we are to draw appropriate lessons. We can divide the history of the socialist countries into two stages that cover the whole history of socialism. One, the transition period and the building of socialism, the socialist period and the building of communism, and two, the counter-revolutionary period and dominance of revisionism. The first stage. It is a revolutionary stage, this is the transition period and building of socialism, the socialist period and building of communism, is a revolutionary stage characterized by the dominance of Marxism-Leninism. In practice, the communist vanguard faced a lot of difficulties, hostile conditions, an imperialist environment, time-worn state apparatuses, the people's illiteracy, and the characteristics of the inherited economic basis, the absence of entire industries, underdevelopment of the productive forces, and large masses of peasantry. Due to the Bolsheviks' correct policy, which adequately reflected reality, the proletariat was able to overcome these difficulties and defend its power, build the foundations of socialism, and create the global socialist system. The second stage is the counter-revolutionary stage and the dominance of revisionism. In the course of their development, socialist countries faced serious problems. The death of leading communists in the war fronts, careerists and petty bourgeois elements entry into the party, uncritical estimates of the party due to its indisputable authority on the workers, survivals of the previous formations, and commodity production. All these things contributed to the development of revisionism and its consequent triumph. 
the top Communist Party leaders betrayed the ideas of Marxism-Leninism. Reactionary elements carried out anti-socialist market reforms, turned Marxist-Leninist theory into empty words, maintained commodity production and the army of professional managers. They developed a bureaucracy. Since the late 1950s, the Soviet Union entered the period of revision. This stage is marked by the destructive market reforms. The expansion of goods uh, circulation in the farming industry was introduced by Kosygin and Liberman's reform in 1965 and resulted in the transition of the Soviet economy to market categories. The, qu the quantity of planned targets decreased significantly and they were mostly replaced by abstract cost indices. So in other words, the, the economic plan decreased significantly, replaced by sort of more market system. In an effort to get profit, facilities were interested in the simple overvaluation of their products. The profits that were not backed by real products caused unsecured demand. Material and products were deficient with which critics of socialism reproached communists. At the same time, so that I think was maybe not the most clear sentence, but uh, they're saying they were trying to get more profits, so facilities would just simply overvalue their products. So then they had profits which weren't backed by real products. This caused unsecured demand, and then uh, materials and products being deficient. And then critics of socialism would say, look at your system, it's not working. But yes, it's not working because we're getting away from communism, actually, not because, not because it is communism. At the same time, the shadow economy was developing more and more. Uh, party members were being involved in it, so the, bourgeois, uh, so the bourgeois class reappeared. Right, let's read that again. At the same time, the shadow economy, or black market, was developing, and more and more party members, people supposed to be guiding and leading the revolution, were involved in it. So the bourgeois class appeared of people making money off of that side system. Eventually it led to the counter-revolution when it got strong enough. Now, the situation in the United States, there's just a few more screens here. The United States is the major capitalist and imperialist country. Sitting in it right now. It is one of the principal countries in the capitalist center and the shock fist of the imperialist bloc. Yeah, this is the same thing I say about, you know, uh, the United States is basically the military wing. They do uh, most of that sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the most, the violent stuff. The United States was able to develop its industrial base and financial systems and gain key monopolies in certain industries. The United States industrial production, like that of the other imperialist countries, is in a precipitous decline. Its financial sector and dominance in key industries, however, enables it, for now, to expropriate massive amounts of surplus value from the global working class, because they own all the fucking loans and they own all the deeds and whatever else. So. Capital-seeking diversified investment by its nature allows the bourgeois class to take their accumulated money capital and extract surplus value in the forms of dividends, interest, capital gains, return of capital, etc. That's what I'm talking about. They, have, uh, they may not own the uh, things directly, they own all the paper. Anyway, the United States, along with other core imperialist countries, first developed their industry and subsequently became centers of finance capital. Finance capital, again, being when financial capital and industrial capital uh, become so intertwined that they essentially merge. In light of this situation, the major imperialist nations attempt to impede the development of other countries so as to maintain this exploitative relation. In other words, they've developed as far as they can, and you know, like the, the, their competitors in China with the chips war, 
they're um, simply trying to hold China back at this point. So anyway, they go as far as they can and they, then they try to impede the development of other countries so that they can stay relatively stronger and continue exploiting. The labor movement in the United States had been in a prolonged decline, and I would add since about 1960. Union participation rates are at historic lows and have been declining for many years. The labor movement has been desperately plagued by opportunism and currently lacks the proper theoretical foundation to expose and maybe confront the capitalist class. The lack of basic health care, growing inequality, and precarious and dangerous working conditions in the country are the outcomes of a failed strategy. The American bourgeoisie fight tooth and nail to cut social programs, reduce their taxes, and maximize their profit. Again, defund, privatize, deregulate. It is necessary to develop class consciousness, necessary to expose the American capitalist class. Uh, so, in other words, we need class consciousness to expose and confront the capitalist class, and we got to develop that class consciousness. Firstly, it is necessary to form a communist vanguard in the United States. Secondly, it is necessary to agitate the working class and raise class consciousness. Thirdly, it is necessary to fight against revisionism and opportunism, which can undermine the working class. By organizing as a class and having the representation of the Communist Party, the workers will be able to resist the bourgeoisie and establish their power, thereby eliminating capitalism and starting the construction of socialism. Three, tactics of the current situation. The Communist and Workers Movement. Presently, we have no genuine Communist Party that would be able to lead workers to the victory of socialism. The Communist Party is fractured into a number of pieces that use the old methods and do not have any modern tactics and strategy, and therefore they cannot work efficiently. They are detached from the working masses. Opportunism, revisionism, sectarianism, dogmatism, theoretical ignorance, deviation towards safe-for-capital socialist nostalgia or petty bourgeois actionism, are the major problems of the communist movement currently. The Mar uh, Marxist-Leninist theory is being exposed to endless distortions. The majority of, quote, communists lack even basic theoretical knowledge that makes things much worse and facilitates the work of capitalist ideologists. The petty bourgeois consciousness and idealistic fallacies also prevail among workers. However, intensification of capitalist conflicts and the falling of the working masses living standards exacerbate the situation, which will naturally lead to the rise of the labor movement and the strengthening of the class struggles. People will at some point, you know, fight back. And we, we are seeing that already. How effective will it be is another question, but they will start to fight back. The necessity of the creation of some basis for the future communist party is becoming urgent. What is a communist party? A communist party is the highest form of political organization of the working class. The communist party unites the best representatives of the working class. It is its organized vanguard that manifests its interests. There is no talk about an effective struggle against capital without the communist party, a combat staff of the working class or weapon of the working class. The main principles characterizing the communist party are, one, Marxism-Leninism as the theoretical basis of the whole work, Two, the strongest connection with the mass workers movement. Three, the struggle against right and left deviations, opportunism and revisionism. Four, proletarian internationalism and resolute struggle against all manifestations of nationalism and chauvinism. And five, democratic centralism as a principle of party formation. The majority of the contemporary, quote, communist organizations do not represent the vanguard of the working class. 
they maintain the opportunist and revisionist policies, and they do not possess a proper number of people and a strong Marxist core. Thus, they disorient working people. The reasons for such quasi-communist organizations to appear is the poor knowledge of theory and the dominance of opportunist and revisionist ideas in the left movement after the collapse of the socialist bloc. Some of these parties are directly sponsored by the bourgeoisie for the purpose of discrediting communist ideas. Only a genuine communist party is able to head the struggle of the working class and, having become its vanguard, to lead it to victory. Stages of Communist Party Formation Nowadays, we single out several stages of the Communist Party formation through which the Communist movement must pass. One, the establishment of a single political theoretical resource that will provide a platform for the consolidation of communists, independent Marxist circles and organizations, that will create conditions for ideological and tactical unity of Marxists, that will create a strong Marxist core and the foundation for the future party, that will be an effective instrument for class consciousness formation, teaching Marxism, agitation, and propaganda among the working masses. So, quoting Lenin, in our opinion, the starting point of our activities, the first step toward creating the desired organization, should be the founding of an all-Russian political newspaper. A newspaper is what we most of all need, without which uh, we cannot conduct that systematic all-round propaganda and agitation, consistent in principle, which is the pressing task of the moment, when interest in politics and in questions of socialism has been aroused among the broadest strains of the population. Right. I believe that's from what is to be done. Uh, two, organization of Marxist clubs. These will become the basis for the preparation of competent Marxists. Three, close connection with workers, maximal involvement of employees into Marxist ranks, class-oriented advocacy, etc. Four, formation of a mass communist party and intensive work that the situation may demand. Broad left tactics, emphasis on actionism, aspiration for socialism onset through reforms, and other opportunistic methods of work are doomed to failure and contribute to further degradation of the communist movement. Over the past decades, the communist movement, not only in the U.S., but throughout the world, was in a deep crisis. We are convinced that the new, truly advanced forces of the proletariat will replace the old organizations of the opportunists and revisionists. Marxist theory will cease to be a bunch of all sorts of biases and tendencies. It will retain its integrity and become a real tool in the struggle for progress and the liberation of the working class. Summing up, a brief answer to the question, what is to be done in our time, sounds like this. Study Marxist-Leninist theory, wage an implacable struggle against opportunism and revisionism, agitate the workers, and organize a real communist party, which will become the vanguard in the struggle against the power of capital. I like that. I like that a lot. So, um, that is pretty much it. We did the, uh, thanks to the patrons before, let's Go back into the chat and just see what people have to say uh, as we wrap up here. Okay, well, I just lost the chat for a second. Okay, my chat is jumping all around. 
Thanks for more content. Oh, okay. Uh, a couple of people. I feel as though market reforms really just invite revisionism and liberal opportunism, unless you're a smaller socialist country with hard sanctions against them that bars international investment. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that seems to be um, the, the lesson we're 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 getting out of out of all this history, for sure. Uh, there was a. Another question. Hi from Spain. Isn't Leninist self-determination principle a danger for the common national platform? I'm not really sure what you mean by the common national platform. In that third parties might promote it for the disintegration of that nation-state workers project. Uh, and there's a comment here. Wasn't Lenin's self-determination principle, though, intrinsically conditioned on the entity invoking that principle being an ideologically socialist one? i.e. if a uh, pro-capitalist entity tries to invoke Lenin's principle to secede from a socialist entity in order to create a new capitalist country, that's a no-go. It was designed to aid socialists, not capitalists. Not entirely. So Lenin um, would give the, um, uh, the example of Norway's secession, which was not necessarily socialist, but Lenin's... Um, summary of the right of nations to self-determination is communists must unconditionally support the right of nations to self-determination um, although they don't have to support every particular instance and so he made the analogy of you know unconditionally supporting the right of married couples to get divorced while not just supporting divorce on principle or even every particular divorce. It, it, in other words, Marxists might look at the situation and go, hey, secession in your case, aka the right of nations to self-determination, might not actually be that good for you. We support your right as, you know, just unchallengeable. However, we wouldn't advise it. So um, I don't know if anything is getting sort of lost in translation anywhere, but there's there's another thing. In practical terms, the principle was likely necessary or indispensable to bring all the nations and ethnicities together to form the USSR. It would have been very difficult, maybe even impossible, to form the USSR without some form of this principle because ethno-nationalism was a quite powerful movement at the turn of the 20th century and a practical compromise was necessary. Without that principle, some nations would possibly not have joined the USSR in the first place. Although Lenin's insistence on this did precede the formation of the USSR fairly significantly. Um, anyway, we have a number of texts on the channel for people um, interested in getting into that. I think I missed some of what the initial question was from our friend from Spain. As far as like a common national platform, um, third parties might, yeah, so I mean, talking about sort of balkanization or the uh, the splitting up of countries into economically sort of useless and dependent entities. Yeah, I mean, that's something that anarchists want and the capitalists, um, you know, might also foment in order to create, you know, rather than one strong socialist state or even one strong capitalist state, that they would encourage, you know, many small, easier to conquer um, separate powers. That's true. So Lenin also talked about that. Lenin said that all things being equal, Marxists prefer larger states over smaller ones because it lends itself better to the kind of planned economy that socialists, you know, go for. Um, 
That said, in some cases, you know, it's sort of the only solution for people to actually get justice for their nationality. So it is what it is. Um, it's not sort of all, all one way or the other. I think, anyway, hopefully um, that, is, you know, the, the anarchists sort of promote splitting for the sake of splitting. Um, Marx and Engels criticized this in Bakunin's, no, what is it? Uh, the Bakuninists at Work, I think it was from 1873, discussing the um, revolution in Spain around 1870. Actually, you're, you're from Spain. There you go. It's relevant. Um, so they were talking about how the Bakuninists, the anarchists in Spain involved in that revolution, were like trying to, they kind of fucked up the revolution, which was a bourgeois revolution in Spain at that time. But the socialists could have played a bigger hand in it. However, the anarchists were insisting on every tiny little area having sovereignty and independence. And what it wound up being is these areas were completely unable to coordinate against the capitalists. And so the capitalists were able with very few troops to just go from like village to village and defeat them because with all that focus on autonomy, there was they had really dropped the ball on... Uh, you know, federation or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, the the work on self-determination, again, Marxists are not going to just go for, yes, secede always, it's a great thing. In fact, we prefer large states over small ones. But we support the right of nations to secede, uh, you know, un unquestioningly, and uh, that's a fixed thing. So anyway, uh, hopefully that's clear. I'm freaking exhausted. So I'm going to sign out, but thanks, everybody for showing up, you all who uh, show up in the chat, help to make this stream what it is. Um, and thanks to everyone on YouTube as well. Thanks again to the patrons. And uh, I'm going to go collapse, so I'll see you all later.